Hi, I'm Jen. I'm Jess. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. This week on Every Rom-Com, we're continuing our musical series with one of the most popular musicals about small-town America. We will listen, and maybe sing along, to some of the catchiest songs in any American musical. We'll talk about some of the pressures facing librarians, both in 1912 and today. And we'll discuss the careers of Meredith Wilson, Robert Preston, and Shirley Jones as we explore the 1962 film, The Music Man. Jess. Hey, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm really excited about our musical series and I'm really excited to have you back on the show. Um, for our listeners, Jess uh, Salo is a librarian and was a guest on our previous episode on The Preacher's Wife, which was episode 51. And she is an awesome librarian. You can hear more about her work on that episode. And probably we'll talk a little bit about libraries and librarians today as well. So that'll be really cool. Oh, yeah, you know we will, because there's a large, large part of this that involves libraries and librarians. I'm really excited to have you on this episode, too, Jess, because you're a first timer to The Music Man. And I saw it like so many times in my childhood. So I think it'll be a nice contrast to have a newbie and somebody who's, you know, kind of lived it almost. Yeah, I am. uh, I feel like I said this in the last time I was with you all, but I'm definitely not a rom-com and I'm definitely not a musical person. At least I wasn't a musical person growing up. And so I'm leaning more into this genre and I'm coming away pleasantly surprised. I'm this was a great one. I'm so sad that I just now started understanding the greatness of Music Man. That's that's wonderful to hear. Uh, yeah, I had the same I had the same thing with Top Hacks. I'd never seen any Ginger Rogers or Fred Astaire <laughs> movies in the okay. past. And so I'm encountering new musicals in this series as well. So when you say you're not a musicals fan, like, are you saying like pretty much you hadn't seen any or are there any that you saw when you were a kid or growing up or even in your adulthood that you kind of liked or stuck out to you at all? Yeah, um, so I will talk about this in, you know, probably the back half of the episode, but there is one. um, It's uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which I am going to recommend. I might as well just say spoilers. I'm going to recommend (laughs) that. But that was like one of the ones I remember sticking out from my childhood was Little Shop of Horrors. And I don't know if that's, I mean, I guess it's technically a musical. Oh, yeah. Um, But yeah, that was probably the one that I saw the most and that can be classified as a musical growing up as a child. So no like sound of music, no like what? No. no. Oh wow, no Disney cartoon musicals or like. I mean, in some respects, everybody has kind of like that exposure to Disney, you know, musicals and stuff like that. But if I did watch them, there, I, I don't have a specific memory about. Oh my god, I loved that, right? And so. Sure. I'm sure I've probably seen some, I I mean, I don't know if like Cinderella and all of those can be classified in some respects as a musical. Um, I guess if that is, then yeah, I, Cinderella was one of my favorite, you know, movies growing up. So if we're talking that genre, yeah, but I guess I didn't really consider that a musical. So I don't know. That's really interesting to talk about and to think about on my end. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people don't consider the Disney animated musicals to be musicals. I mean, obviously you don't have real people dancing, but you do have singing. And so for me, like I kind of consider them to be musicals. I think they oh, serve okay. a lot of the same functions anyway that musicals serve. So, you oh. know, I like that. Um, okay. If we have time on this series, we're going to do Beauty and the Beast, the animated <gasps> version. Oh. oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I love that one. Such a good one. Okay. More books in that one, too. So this, maybe, oh that's, <laughs> maybe that's the connection. Hey, there we go. Yes, absolutely. That could be. That very much could be. Musicals with books. There aren't enough musicals with books. And there's not a lot of enough movies with librarians, actually, I think, oh either. Yes, a hundred percent. I feel like our profession is uh, somewhat misunderstood. I'll get into this, you know, as we talk through some of this. But yeah, in general, it doesn't feel like libraries or librarians, uh, just in general, are a part of the plot or a main kind of person in this. So yeah, I agree. Bring back more librarians and libraries into into movies. Yeah, I think that would be wonderful. And so in addition to being a librarian, Jess, you are the co-host of Body Literati. And we've had you and your co-host Aza on the show like on many occasions now. And what's going on with Body Literati? Um, how's season two wrapping up? And do you have plans for season three? Yeah, so we just released our season two wrap up episode this last Friday. So we're officially wrapped for season two, our billionaire season, one of our first themed seasons, which I think Oz and I came away from that uh, very enthusiastic that we chose a theme because uh, it felt like it centered us a lot. And uh, I think in general, we had a lot of hot takes about billionaires and the genre of billionaires within romance and erotica. And as far as season three, yeah, we do have some plans. We're going to be coming back uh, in the back half of the year, so probably around October. So spooky season. Keep an eye out on our social media. In general, season two was awesome. Season three is going to be great because I have some ideas percolating that I want to pitch to Aza about a theme for season three. And we'll see how she goes and see and see what we come up with. But we're super excited. So thank you for asking about that. No, I'm, I'm excited to hear what your next theme is going to be. And actually, like one thing, one thing I'm going to make, make a suggestion as a listener and friend of the podcast. My suggestion would be to release uh, and maybe you have and I didn't see it, but if but um, if you haven't, like maybe release like some of the book titles in advance so that we, your listeners, can read along mm -hmm. and be ready to listen to your take on it. I think that would be really fun. Interesting. Thank you for that suggestion. We definitely will take that into consideration. Love it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, you should definitely check out um, Jess and Asa's work. And it is, yeah, as you said, at Body Literati on Instagram. And I'll put links to the your show on in the show notes as well so people can check it out from there. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you. Yeah. And thanks for coming back on the show. I'm really glad to have you here. Like, I know you both have busy lives, so great to have you back. Okay. So before we get started with the show today, just a few notes as usual. As usual, we will have a spoiler-free section at the beginning of the episode, and we will warn you when the spoilers are about to start. And I'd also like to remind you, you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at everyromcom, and our Twitter handle is at everyromcompod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com and send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And then finally, I've got just a little ask. If you're a regular listener or if you're somebody who just really enjoys this particular show, you might want to consider giving us a small donation at Buy Me A Coffee. So we now have a Buy Me A Coffee page, 
buymeacoffee.com slash every rom-com. And even a small donation left there really helps us to cover the costs of having this podcast. You know, if you are able, we really appreciate it. If you're not able, we totally understand, but it'll really help us keep going for the coming years. Anyway, I'll put a link to that as well in the show notes. And thanks again for just listening and for all your support. And now we're going to listen to the trailer for The Music Man. Folks, listen. May I have your attention, please? Attention, please. I can handle your troubled friend. Now you know I can. Oh, yes, I can. Please observe me if you will. I'm Professor Harold Hill. And I'm speaking of a big fat picture, The Music Man. I say Broadway's biggest long-run hit is coming right here to your screen. Professor Harold Hill's on hand. Now for a peek at the music man. Not a big peek, just a little peek at the wonders that await you in Technicolor. Are you out there? And you, and you. Yeah, that is a very strange trailer compared to most trailers we've had, but I kind of like its gimmick. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, it definitely doesn't give away anything and so just gives like the basic premise which I kind of like because you definitely go through a roller coaster in this movie and so I really appreciate it. And plus, I don't know, maybe because I'm uh old now and you know, the time that we live in and when this was released, it feels like trailers are so different nowadays compared to what they used to be. And what they give away nowadays is just shocking compared to what <laughs> it used to be. It's so fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah, this is really more of a teaser. But I think the fact that they could like he could just like start into one of his songs from the musical and reference a Broadway musical as a reason to watch a movie. It kind of shows you almost like how people were consuming all the same culture at the time. You know what I mean? That people would have known about a Broadway musical enough to like that be the selling point for the movie. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, The Music Man came out June 19th, 1962. It was directed by Morton DaCosta. It was written by Meredith Wilson, Franklin Lacey, and Marion Hargrove. And it starred Robert Preston and Shirley Jones. So the basic premise, here we go. So it's 1912 and there's a con man named Harold Hill. And he decides to stop off at a city called River City, Iowa, with plans to sell the citizens band instruments and uniforms. And then he's going to run off without teaching the children of the town how to play any of these instruments. So in order to make sure he's not discovered, Harold Hill tries to seduce the town's intelligent and suspicious librarian and piano teacher, Marion Peru. While at first she resists his charms, she does a really good job in this, by the way, <laughs> Marion begins to see the good in Harold Hill when the band instruments help her little brother Winthrop come out of a shell. So heartwarming. Uh, many people in town are changed for the better by Harold. But will he, Harold Hill, be discovered? Oh my gosh, this is such a great basic premise. And what will happen when it's time for him to leave town? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. It, it's it's convoluted in some ways, but in other ways, it's very simple. Yeah, it this is, whole story. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. 
So I, my mind was kind of blown learning about the backstory of this movie. So I'm just, I'm going to go into this just a little bit with some interesting facts. So The Music Man was originally a Broadway musical, as we heard in the trailer, with a book by Meredith Wilson and Franklin Lacey and music and lyrics by Meredith Wilson. And apparently this is kind of uncommon on Broadway for somebody to do both the book and the music and lyrics for a musical. So like the book being like the script, what they call the script on Broadway. Yeah, apparently that's not always done or often done. And so he was a bit of a prodigy in that way, I guess. Yeah, Um, definitely. Yeah. And the musical itself was based on Wilson's 1948 memoir called And There I Stood With My Piccolo, which was about his life in his hometown of Mason City, Iowa, and his time spent playing piccolo with John Philip Sousa's band. So we have this musical as being written by somebody who actually has played in a marching band and has lived in a small town in Iowa. It's kind of like, here's my story. Right. And I find this fascinating because I was in band growing up. And uh, I don't know, like if you're, you've never been in a marching band, you kind of don't know like that vibe within marching bands. And it can get interesting. I'm going to ask you more about your band experience later. Oh, okay. I'm putting a note in my head. Yep. (laughs) Oh, excellent. Please do. Please do. Because it was some of the best times I ever had in my life, honestly. So this show was Meredith Wilson's first full-length musical. And he wrote over 40 drafts of the book and over 58 songs before he was finished. So this was like a long project for him. Um, Interestingly, I found out the first draft was called The Silver Triangle. And the story was like way different. A lot of it was like focused on this young, physically disabled boy who was in a wheelchair and the townspeople kind of like trying to get him put in an institution because, you know, that was something that was happening like still in the mid middle of the last century. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And then in his story for the music man, Harold Hill helped the boy by finding him an instrument to play, which was the silver triangle in the title. So the producers actually urged him uh, to change this story I guess they thought that having, you know, a disabled boy in a wheelchair on stage would be like depressing or something is is kind of what the deal was. And so then the character was changed to Winthrop, who has the lisp, and that kind of took the place in the story. But it's interesting that it was like an early example of somebody like sort of trying to create disability representation in musicals, which is, yeah, I mean, maybe it wouldn't have been done perfectly. But like the idea that Meredith Wilson was thinking about that back then is, I, I think it's intriguing. Yeah. So the Music Man um, in its final form ended up being really successful and it ran for three and a half years and 1,375 performances on Broadway starting in December of 1957. And it was critically acclaimed in, in 1958, it won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical and it beat West Side Story for Best Musical. It also won Best Actor in a Musical for Robert Preston, who was in the original Broadway cast. And when you think when you think about that man doing that many performances before he even did the movie, wild, amazing, and he is so good in this. Like oh, I'm yeah. so happy that they got him to stay and do this because he is amazing in this movie. Yeah, honestly, I think like I'll probably mention this later too. I think this is probably one of the best performances I've ever seen anyone give. When I really look at it, like now with adult eyes, I'm just like, whoa, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's amazing. When The Music Man was adapted into a movie, Preston was also uh, cast in the movie. Other people who came to the movie from the Broadway play included the Broadway director, Morton DaCosta, as well as the Barbershop Quartet, the Buffalo Bills, Pert Kelton, who played Mrs. Peru, and Peggy Mondo, who played Ethel Toffelmeyer. So they were all from the original. Paul Ford, who played Mayor Shin, was a replacement actor during the original Broadway run. 
And then there were several other actors who were in the touring version and came over to the movie, including Susan Lucky, who plays Zanita Shin, the mayor's daughter. But Robert Preston was not the studio's favorite choice. The studio wanted to give Robert Preston's role to people, including Frank Sinatra and Cary Grant. Um, apparently, Cary Grant wasn't having it. According to TCM, he said, not only will I not play it, but if Robert Preston doesn't do it, I won't even see the picture. <laughs> wow. That's so, having somebody's back right there. I know. Like, I mean, a lot of people had seen this musical, probably like a lot of these actors had seen it and been like, well, no, Robert Preston deserves this. Yeah. Right. Right. But I guess he was never not going to get it because Meredith Wilson had casting rights and told the producers in the studio that if they didn't cast Robert Preston, he wouldn't let them make the movie. So he's just like, yeah, he knew, he knew. Yeah. That's a baller move right there. <laughs> yeah. But Shirley Jones did end up replacing the Broadway actress, Barbara Cook, and she was cast due to her success in the movie musicals Carousel and Oklahoma. And like, I I'm sure Barbara Cook is awesome too, but Shirley Jones is fantastic in this movie. I oh, think she's so good. Yeah, so good. I think she does such a great job in this. Ooh, yeah. And then the movie version is very faithful to its Broadway version. So like, unlike many other mu movie musicals, there was only one song change. The song My White Knight was changed to Being in Love. And I think even that had some commonalities between the two songs. The movie took about nine months to film and a lot of the time was devoted to perfecting the dance numbers. And it ended up premiering in Meredith Wilson's hometown of Mason City, Iowa, which again was the inspiration for River City. And the premiere of the movie was scheduled to coincide with the North Iowa Band Festival. So it was like this big event. Like, um, yeah, it sounds kind of cool actually. It does. Like, I feel like that would be like a, like a huge thing for that town, right? Yeah. Like a huge, huge event that would bring in so many people and just so much attention to that area that I'm sure they're just like, yes, please bring this to us <laughs> so that we can have like all of this. But that's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, Mason City was by no means as small as the fictional River City, but like, yeah, it was still, yeah, it's still, it's no like big city or anything like that. So it wasn't used to things like this happening. Yeah. Right. right. Um, the Music Man was the fifth highest grossing movie of 1962, and it made almost $50 million. Um, it was also nominated for six Oscars, including Best Picture, and it won for Best Music, Scoring of Music, Adaptation, or Treatment. And The Music Man has been performed many times over the years, and it's been revived more than once on Broadway. The most recent revival starred Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster as Harold Hill and Marion Peru, and it finished its run in January 2023. And there was also like a TV movie version in 2003 starring Matthew Broderick and Kristen Chenoweth, but I tried to watch a little of it and I was like, no, can't. <laughs> You're just like, I can't. Nope, it's not. That's so fascinating. I didn't know that Matthew Broadwick and Kristen, that's like a weird combo for me. Like, those <laughs> two. Yeah, Matthew Broderick, like, I mean, he can sing, I guess, but like he just, for me, he doesn't have that. I guess when he was Ferris Bueller, he had a certain similar energy, like convincing his friend to do wild things. But it's one right. thing to convince your friend to do stuff. It's another thing to convince an entire town. So Right, exactly. Like, it's not <laughs> just like three people. It's literally like 15 people you got to like keep up all of this like with. And yeah, I don't feel like Matthew Broderick has that kind of like charisma that Robert has in order to do yeah. um, this type of work at all. 
So speaking of that Robert Preston charisma, we're now going to talk about our cast and crew a little bit and starting with Robert Preston. So he was born in 1918 in Massachusetts and his family later moved to Los Angeles. He actually quit school at 16 to become an actor and started his work in theater and then into movies. Uh, His first IMDb credit is for the movie King of Alcatraz in 1938. And his early career was mostly acting in Westerns and kind of tougher like roles and rarely in lead roles. So some of his early films were Bo Jest, Northwest Mounted Police, Reap the Wild Wind, and This Gun for Hire. So you can kind of even tell by the titles, like what kind of movies he was starring in. So during World War II, Preston served in the U.S. Army Air Forces working as an intelligence officer. And then after the war, Preston continued to work in movies, but he also began working in TV. And in 1951, he began working on Broadway. So it was a few years on Broadway before he landed the lead in The Music Man in 1957. And The Music Man was Preston's first musical. He had never even sung in public before. Wow, I'm this is oh this is fascinating. This man has had a had a life. Wow. Yeah, it's it's I'm like when I found out that was his first musical, I'm like, what? Like, okay. But um he received a Tony Award for his performance in 1958. And then of course he reprised his role in the movie version of The Music Man. And then after his success in The Music Man, he continued to work in theater, movies, and TV. In the 60s and 70s, he appeared in movies including The Dark at the Top of the Stairs. How the West Was Won, Junior Bonner, and Mame. Mame was another musical. He also appeared in stage productions including Ben Franklin in Paris, The Lion in Winter, and Mac in Mabel. And in 1965, he won a second Tony Award for the musical I Do, I Do. And then in the 1980s, Preston appeared in some of his other most well-known films. He appeared in the Blake Edwards movies SOB in 1981 and Victor Victoria in 1982, And he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his work in Victor Victoria. And his last feature film was The Last Starfighter in 1984. He did go on to appear in a few TV movies, and his last IMDb credit is for the TV movie Outrage in 1986. And in 1987, Preston died of lung cancer at age 68. So, yeah, I honestly, I'd only really known Preston from... The Music Man and Victor Victoria. Those are literally the only movies I have still seen him in. I I want to check out his other work now. But yeah, that's how I knew him, those two movies. And they're very different roles, which I'll talk about in our double feature recommendations. All right. So we're going to talk about Shirley Jones. So Shirley was born in 1934 in Pennsylvania. And shout out to a fellow Pennsylvanian. I'm also from Pennsylvania. So give it up. Shout out for us Pennsylvanians. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Uh, Shirley began singing in the church choir at age six and also began voice lessons as a child. Uh, She studied theater at Pittsburgh Playhouse and began performing in Pittsburgh. She also auditioned for Rodgers and Hammerstein in New York City and was signed to a seven-year contract to work in their musicals. It started out with a small part in South Pacific on Broadway. She also began appearing in TV in the early 1950s. Her big break was a lead role in the movie version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma in 1955. And I will say I've never seen Oklahoma. Uh, Again, another one of these that I'm just like, I've heard of it. I've never seen it though. Yeah, so. so I've actually never seen all of Oklahoma either. And I started trying to watch it for this podcast episode. And 
I liked some of the songs, but I was like bored compared to the Music Man. Like the Music Man has such good pacing comparatively, in my opinion, and like all the songs interest me. So I don't know. I might I probably end up trying to give it another shot and getting to the end of it. But yeah, it didn't grab me the same way. So interesting. Okay, all right. So in 1956, Shirley married Jack Cassidy, uh, and she became the stepmother to her future TV son, David Cassidy. Eventually, she and Jack would have three more children, Sean, Patrick, and Ryan. And Sean and Patrick are also singers and actors. She was in several more films before The Music Man, including Carousel, April Love, and her first dramatic role in Elmer Gantry in 1960, for which she won a Best Supporting Actress uh, for an Oscar nomination. Soon after The Music Man, Shirley appeared in another movie with Ron Howard, who played her Music Man character's little brother, The Courtship of Eddie's Father. Some of Shirley's other movies from the 1960s and 70s include Bedtime Story, The Secret of My Success, and The Cheyenne Social Club. From 1970 to 1974, Shirley appeared in her other best-known project, The Partridge Family. This blew my mind, honestly, when I was like, because I, I, for some reason, I didn't correlate this to the same person. And then as soon as I started like looking her up on, you know, Wikipedia, IMDb, and I was just like, wait, that is the mom from Partridge Family. And I was just like, holy cow, like this, it, yeah, this, this was amazing. And I was just like, whoop. Okay. So, so did, yes. wait, did you watch the Partridge family when you were a kid then? Or like, I, I did dip in and out of it. Uh, you know, I say that, uh, you know, because that started in the seventies, I was born technically in 1980. Mm-hmm. It was something that was on TV and I did catch episodes here and there, but I wasn't like a super fan where I would sit down and watch it. So, but yeah, I, I know about, I've, I've seen some of the episodes. Um, and I guess for me compared to the Brady Bunch, I was more of a Brady Buncher than a Partridge family. Era, so. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't think I ever watched a whole episode of it until I prepared for the podcast. I watched like the pilot episode and half of the second episode. And like, I, I thought she, she does look a little different, but like, she does. but, but you can, you can put it together and she's got that same kind of cheerful kind of wholesome air and she's good with children she's good with children in oh the music God. man and she's yes. good acting with children in the partridge family too a hundred percent a hundred percent so this the partridge family where she played the mother and was one of the singers in the family band i love that it was a family band by the way oh, that's like a whole nother thing uh she starred in the partridge family with her real life stepson david cassidy in addition to being a hit TV show, The Partridge Family also had success as a musical group, most notably for the number one song, I Think I Love You. Such a good song. Yeah. Such, yeah. such a great song. So when asked about The Partridge Family, Shirley told the Vancouver Sun, though it was great for me and gave me an opportunity to stay home and raise my kids, when my agents came to me and presented it to me, they said, if you do a series and it becomes a hit show, you will be the character for the rest of your life and your film career will go into the toilet, which is what happened. But I have no regrets. But yeah, so throughout the, the rest of the 1970s, she mainly appeared in TV movies. Her next feature film was Beyond the Poseidon Adventure in 1979. I love those movies, by the way. They're amazing. <laughs> Some of like my early kind of like disaster, like dystopian kind of like uh, genre love that I absolutely dig to this day. Nice. Um, Then in 1975, she divorced Jack Cassidy. And in 1977, she remarried actor Marty Ingalls, uh, who she stayed with until he died in 2015. 
From the 1980s until present, Shirley has appeared mainly in TV shows and TV movies, including The Love Boat, Murder, She Wrote, and her short-lived sitcom called Shirley, uh, <laughs> Melrose Place, The Drew Carey Show, Monarch Cove, Days of Our Lives, Cougar Town, and many more. She also made some lesser-known movies from the 1980s through today, including Tank, Grandma's Boy, Family Weekend, and Eco Teens Save the World. Wow, what a yeah. what a title! Yeah, Ooh. that's that that was a wild one. I was like, oh, this is a variety she's in here. <laughs> that's so true, so true. Uh, so in 2004 and 2005, she returned to Broadway with roles in productions of 42nd Street and Carousel. And in 2014, she released a memoir, which included an honest discussion of her sex life. Oh, oh, (laughs) all right. I might have to pick up this uh, memoir. Okay. (laughs) And then her last IMDb credit was in 2021, but she also is listed in one current project that is in development. So she's still alive. And I was so surprised that she was actually still alive. Like sometimes these people that kind of like, you know, go out of the spotlight when you're a kid you're just like oh I see these people all the time and then they kind of like slowly go away and you're just like what happened to these folks and so it's always amazing to have somebody pop up like oh I remember them oh they're still alive oh that's amazing that's so great (laughs) yeah still alive and still working like she could become the next Betty White maybe if people become Uh, a little bit aware of her I don't know that would be baller if that actually happened because yeah betty white had such a success at the towards the back half of her life that yeah to this day she's just going to be remembered as just like pure gold pure gold yeah so i'm going to tell us a little bit about meredith wilson who wrote the original musical um the books the book and the music and lyrics and which almost all of it got transposed accurately into the movie so meredith wilson was born in mason city iowa in 1902 He grew up in a pretty educated family, and his mother was very active in the community, teaching kindergarten and piano lessons, among other things. So I got to think that having a a sort of an intelligent mother who's very active probably would inspire him to write a character like Marion Peru a little bit. I feel like having that example. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wilson learned to play the piccolo and the flute in high school. And then at age 19, he moved to New York City to study music at the Damrush Institute of Musical Art which would later become Juilliard. So from 1921 to 1923, he was part of John Philip Sousa's famous band, and he toured with them in the U.S., Cuba, and Mexico. And after that, Wilson played with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra and the New York Chamber Music Society. And then during the 1930s, he moved to the West Coast. He composed symphonic music there and conducted symphonies, and then began working in radio and on film music. So already he's quite young still at this point. And he has like toured the world with a marching band. He's created symphonies. He's conducted orchestras. This guy is like doing so much stuff. I can't even get my mind around it. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, it feels like a lot of his, this experience that he garnered prior to this really comes out in the work that he does. So this is quite incredible. And then in 1940, Wilson composed the score for the Charlie Chaplin movie, The Great Dictator, and his score was nominated for an Oscar. So he gets into movie music and right away he's getting success there. And then he's nominated again for an Oscar for arranging the music on the 1941 movie, The Little Foxes. So he's got like these two big successes in a row with movie music. Um, Then World War II came and he served as a major in the Armed Forces Radio Service. And like, so what he did was he wrote marching songs and he also 
programmed and recorded up to eight shows a day to send out to troops who were stationed around the world. And then after World War II, uh, Wilson was a music director of the ABC radio and television networks. And he also wrote popular songs outside of musicals. He wrote like one of the best known Christmas songs in 1951. So he wrote, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. So oh. <laughs> that's wild. That's um, such a classic yeah. Christmas song. <laughs> and as mentioned, The Music Man was Wilson's first musical, but he went on to write three more musicals, The Unsinkable Molly Brown and Here's Love that both made it to Broadway. And then his last musical was 1491, which is about Columbus's efforts to raise money for his journey. And yeah, I'm just as glad that one didn't Whoa. make it to Broadway. I don't yeah. need a Christopher Columbus musical. No, I think that that is absolutely something that doesn't need to be on Broadway at all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a different time. Like we were still like, learning about Columbus Day when I went to like, you know, kindergarten or whatever. So, yeah. So true. Yep. So during his career, Wilson wrote more than 400 songs, nine symphonic works, and the four musicals. And he also wrote three memoirs. He died of heart failure in 1984 at age 82. So he had quite an accomplished life. I mean, even if I'd written The Music Man, I'd feel pretty good about myself. But this dude wrote one of the most famous Christmas carols, The Music Man, and then did all this other stuff, too. So good on you, Chris Wilson. So then other important cast and crew in The Music Man include Buddy Hackett, who plays Harold's friend Marcellus, Ron Howard, who is um, listed as Ronnie Howard here, who plays Marion's little brother Winthrop. And of course, Ron Howard went on to become a really famous director. Perk Kelton as Marion's mother. Hermione Gingold as the mayor's wife, Eulalie McKechnie Shin, Paul Ford as Mayor George Shin, the Buffalo Bills Barbershop Quartet as themselves, and Anna White is the choreographer of both the musical and the movie. And this was her first movie. So I just wanted to give her a shout out as well. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And I'm still to this day, like blown away by Ron Howard and his career. I always forget that he was a child actor like, <laughs> every time. And when he pops up in movies, I'm just like, oh, that's Ron Howard, isn't it? And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I always forget that he was a child actor. And it's just so interesting to see the career that he yeah. has has had uh, not just him, but his brother, his daughter, like yeah. everybody in that family now is like associated and like huge Hollywood royalty nowadays. Totally, totally. And when, my, when we ever would watch The Music Man when I was a kid, my dad would like point him out and be like, little Ronnie Howard. And then he would tell about his movies he directed. And my dad, this is like every time we watched the movie, it didn't matter that I already knew it. He just liked saying it. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> that's so fun. <laughs> And that kind of brings us to our general opinion, because like I'll I'll go ahead and I'll talk about like my connection to this movie. So when we decided to do the musical series, I was like, Music Man has to be on it because it's got comedy, it's got romance, and it's so foundational to my experience in musicals. Like I I saw this probably before I even remember seeing it. Uh, we watched it all the time. My dad would sing songs from it. He'd sing like Till There Was You, because the Beatles also covered that. And I think it was my dad's favorite musical. And my mom liked it too. And I feel like um I'm not even sure what it is I responded to, but I think now that I've analyzed it more, I think it's the complexity of the lyrics and the pacing are so good. And then I think Robert Preston and Shirley Jones are just so good in their roles. Like I really believe in both of their realities and really all the supporting cast are so great too. And I think it makes sense that so many of them actually came to this from the Broadway production, whether the original or the touring group. 
because they put so much time into developing those roles. I like this remains one of my favorite musicals. Doing the podcast has actually deepened my appreciation of it. And I'll talk about why as we go through some of the individual songs. But yeah, I mean, I'm certainly there are things in the movie that don't age well. Um, but in a way, but in a way, it's they're kind of there as markers of like where society was in both 1962 and in 1912. It's in some ways, I think it's good to have them there as a time marker or a sort of a time capsule of like, this is what American society felt was normal then and then kind of. So what we can talk about that issue as we go, though. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, um, I have never seen this musical. As I said at the beginning, um, I didn't grow up in a family that watched musicals. So this was my first time seeing The Music Man and I loved it. Like, I'm so sad that I didn't grow up with this type of kind of musical. But we lived on the East Coast as well. And apologies to people who grew up in the Midwest and including you, Jen. Uh, <laughs> I just I, I just didn't really have a lot of that like exposure to Midwest life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was all about, you know, staying kind of in our East Coast bubble. My mom was born and raised in New York City. So it was just kind of like this was not something that I had any exposure to. But it's so good. I am so happy to have, you know, you bring this to me and get to see, because I've heard of Buddy Hackett, right? Like he's kind of like that name that floats up a little bit in, into, into the, into the zeitgeist, uh, especially with some of, you know, maybe um, the people who did TV when I was growing up, that, that was a name that a lot of people were familiar with. And so his name would like sprinkle up, but I was just like, oh, okay. I really don't know this person, but come to find out there's Buddy Hackett in here and he has such a huge role in this movie and I was just like oh my god but yeah I this is my first time I enjoyed it tremendously I'm still singing the songs uh, uh, from this in my brain I actually watched this with my partner and he never saw it either and he him and I after we watched it we were just like wow this is really damn good like wasn't it and we we're just like holy cow I can't believe like how good this was but as you said you know some of that stuff like that we'll talk about in a little bit is a little kind of like ooh, oh I don't know if nowadays this would be something that you know we, they would be able to get away with um, just in in general but yeah this was a great experience um i really want to watch more musicals and i need some recommendations out there so send oh, me okay. some, some musical recommendations folks that are similar to music man because wow <laughs> oh wow oh wow what what an experience for me nice nice no i'm really pleased like honestly like this i already feel like i've accomplished something that i've introduced two people to the music band who never saw it and they both enjoyed it so that makes me really happy do you think do you think it's like the story that you respond to the lyrics uh the music itself or like just a combination or is it the actors or I think it's a combo of all of it, right? Because I really enjoyed kind of like, even from like the beginning of this, like it comes in like hard, like you yeah. get like, you know, uh, the the whole scene on the train yeah. and just like, that just like sucks you in and you're just like, okay, okay. And then Robert Preston, like I, if it wasn't for him, I really truly do not think that this musical would be what it is uh, to this day because he does such a good job with Harold Hill and oh my the way God, that yeah. he sells this character and the way that he's able to just like 
and insert himself so strategically and so kind of like connected <laughs> to that community in such a short amount of time. It's just like, yeah, this guy, if he was alive to this day, he would be like the number one salesman on like some <laughs> Fortune 500 company and be making literal millions of dollars because this dude is top-notch. So I think it's like the music, the actors, and kind of in a lot of respects, like the way these people like play off of each other is just so good. Yeah, like honestly, and I, I mentioned this before, but like honestly, I feel like Robert Preston's performance in The Music Man, if I had to make a list of the top five performances in movies of all time, I would now put his performance in The Music Man in my top five. I don't know where it would go because I haven't tried to think of the other four yet, but he's there like 100% because like I just noticed his mannerisms that right. he has. They're so detailed. Like he's so, every move he makes is so thoughtful. And just like his body language in the whole movie is amazing. And his, and his, and his dialogue work when he actually has some dialogue is there's some really powerful moments there too. And of course he had so many performances to develop this role, but like whatever the reason, I just think it's one of the most solid film performances I've ever seen. And then Shirley Jones's voice is like an angel. Oh, I'm, so I, beautiful. I, I so badly, so badly wanted to have her voice when I was a kid. Like I cannot hit a lot of her notes and it still makes me a little bit sad. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, try, try to like, I challenge people out there to try to sing like good night, my someone or um, the the, the one where she's doing lie to Rose with them. She's doing her own song. Yeah. It's amazing. So. So good. Yeah. She does such a great, great job. And again, everybody on this cast sells it to the nth degree. And that's why this works so, so well. So a little bit just about to place this musical in context of the other ones we've covered before we go on. So just Hollywood musicals in the 1960s, um, musicals were still sort of a popular movie genre throughout much of the 1960s. Some of the other big hits of the decade included West Side Story, Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music, and Funny Girl. And a lot of these popular 1960s musicals were screen versions of Broadway successes. So like On the Town was also a screen version of a Broadway musical, but Top Hat, our first one we covered, was not. And like we said in the On the Town episode, there were kind of two strains of musicals in the golden age of musicals. There were the urban musicals, like something like West Side Story or On the Town. And then there were these rural musicals like um, Music Man and Oklahoma. So this is kind of a different picture of American society. And they were two kind of popular strains that you would see. So yeah, just to put it in a little bit of context there. Okay, so we come into the movie. As you said, did you say the movie comes in hard? Is that what you said? Something like that? or like- It does. It comes in so hard. Like this train scene, like opening up, like, oh man, I, I enjoyed it so much. Enjoyed it 100% too and, much. And even before we get to the train scene, I just want to shout out really quick the overture and the opening credits because it starts with like a band whistle. And I had the yes. soundtrack when I was growing up and I would put the soundtrack tape in our van. And a couple of times I like really scared my parents because they thought somebody <laughs> was whistling outside the car. It's funny. Anyway, funny. they also did like a stop motion thing in their credit sequence where they had these little like army marching dudes or whatever and then they like rearrange them to make different people the name of the film and then to make different band instruments so that's kind of a fun opening credits it's very early 1960s yeah that was so cute I thought that that was so so cute like bring that back like come on man let's let's have more of these like opening film things that are you know kind of entertaining and not just like scrolling through credits right like type of thing yeah yeah nice nice 
Yeah, and then, like you said, we have this opening train scene. We have Harold Hill rushes onto this train. He's being pursued by angry locals. And then we get into these salesmen who are all on a train car, and they're kind of um, singing and talking together. So it's like called a patter song, where it's kind of like rapid-fire talking rather than singing. That's kind of the term for it. And I'm going to play just a little clip of it, and then we can kind of um, discuss that. So it's just a little clip of them, the salesmen on the train. Credit is no good for an ocean salesman. How far are you going, friend? Wherever the people are as green as the money, friend. What's the matter with credit? It's old-fashioned. Charlie, you're an anvil salesman. Your firm give credit? No, sir. Nor anybody else. River City, next station stop, River City, Iowa. Cash for the merchandise. Cash for the button hooks. Cash for the cotton goods. Cash for the hard goods. Cash for the fancy goods. Cash for the soft goods. Cash for the noggins and the piggins and the frickins. Cash for the hogshead cask and demijohn. Cash for the crackers and the pickles and the fly paper. Look, what do you talk? 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 Where do you get it? What do you talk? You can talk, you can talk, you can bigger, you can talk, you can bigger, 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 you can talk, you can talk, you can talk, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. You can talk all you want, but it's different than it was. No, it ain't, no, it ain't. But you gotta know the territory. Why it's a Model T Ford made the trouble, made the people wanna go, wanna get, wanna get, wanna get up and go. Seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, fourteen, twenty-two, twenty-three miles to the county seat. Yes, sir. Yes. Sir. Who's gonna patronize a little bitty two by four kind of store anymore? What do you talk? What do you talk? Where do you get it? Gone, gone, gone with the hogshead cask and demijohn. Gone with the sugar barrel, pickle barrel, milk pan. Gone with the tub and the pail and the tears. Ever meet a fella by the name of Hill? Hill. 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 Okay, we're going to stop it for now. So yeah, we heard the first part where they're just kind of talking about like the changes that have taken place in selling things like uh, in the early 1900s with the advent of the automobile and just the different way people were starting to shop. I love that like that sets the scene for the time people are living in and this kind of underlying theme of change and kind of a fear of change that I think pervades the movie. Right. I and I I love that too. Like I said, this like opening sequence, I I loved like literally every part of it. It was just kind of like and, and it felt like every actor and I wonder how long these people had to like practice this cuz it comes off so flawlessly in yeah. some respects for me. And and it seems like everybody like it has like a a part in it and everybody executes executes it so well and I love too how they're like you know and probably at the time I don't know if this was like something that they could have done at this time about like the train and how you know like the men were like going up and down and stuff like that and it's like was that part of the set or is that like no you have to do that right you gotta like go up and down like the train is (laughs) like you know bumping along the road right you know and stuff like that but yeah, I found this so fascinating because it brings up so many of, again, in 1912, like, as you said, like the change that is coming through, especially, I'm sure, for small rural towns, like the Model T, uh, you know, the sales catalog, like that was like the huge, huge way that people got like all of their stuff was through catalog salesmen, like through a lot of these things. And now that cars were coming into the community, what that meant, like four folks and then you know get into kind of like like the riffraff you know that comes along with like a lot of this as well and I think just sales people in general at this time 
oh man, I can't even imagine like what <laughs> what was going on in that you know industry at that time as things were changing in the way that they were. Yeah, yeah. And I like I like if you take the lyrics and then you there's actually I should put this in the show notes. I'll remind myself to do this. I saw this like glossary of the music man and it had like a listing of all these different things they're talking about gone with the prickins and the frickins. I don't even know what they're called. I can't even pronounce it right. Um outside of the song. But like the hogsheads, the demijohns, it tells you what all these things are. And it's like kind of like a history lesson in how things used to be sold in little stores. And it's really interesting to see that too, I think. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yes. Oh, I'm excited to see that link. Oh. <laughs> I just, I found, I didn't want to like belabor that on the show by de- defining what a hogshead was, but if anybody's really <laughs> interested, we can, we can put that in the show notes for you. Yeah. And I just, the rhythm, the energy of this speaking, this patter song, um, John McWhorter, the linguist called it in the New York times, he called it a kind of proto rap. And I, I can kind of see what he's, what he's saying there. And I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah. I can absolutely <laughs> see that. Yeah, absolutely. What do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? I love that guy too. I just like <laughs> I do too. So fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. So um yeah, so we both love this song. And this song actually I think for me is the song that I took for granted when I was a kid and when I came to it as an adult, I was like, "Oh my god. Like this is kind of genius." Like I was yeah. like did not realize what it was when I was a kid. Yeah, and I think for me too, and again, compared to nowadays to back then, so many practical like effects and practical things that are going on in this movie that sell it so well. Uh, and the people, it seems like the people have like a different energy or a different understanding of how they needed to show up and sell this movie, right? Mm-hmm. For folks to really be invested in it. And they hit it from the beginning. Like, like I said, I didn't know what I was getting into. And as soon as this came on and this started, I was just like, yes, yes, <laughs> nice. I'm going to love this. It's going to be so great. And yep, I sure, sure enough did. Yep, absolutely. Cool, cool. So the part of the song we didn't hear, they're talking about Harold Hill and describing what he does and how he sells band instruments to kids. And then there's an Anvil salesman who on the train who's mad at Harold Hill because he's given salesmen a bad name all across like the country. And he calls uh, Harold Hill a bare-faced double shuffle two-bit thimble rigger. <laughs> I don't know what you rig a thimble to do, but, I, but I'm intrigued by that concept. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and he's Anvil Salesman's going to come up later in the story. Ooh, um, but Harold Hill decides to reveal himself to the other salesman as he jauntily jumps off the train and goes to Iowa to try to try his luck among the citizenry there. I found this part so funny, like when he just like reveals himself and they all just like go to the windows and they're like opening. They're just like, oh, you, we're going to get you. And he's just like, "Uh, no, thanks, y'all. I'm going to be here and I'm going to do my thing. And thank you very much for giving me the idea to stop here because this is going to be great. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Now we now we come to the song Iowa Stubborn. And um, it begins where he's meeting the locals on the in their fields and on the small town street. A local pronounces Iowa as Iowa. He says, "We, you are in Iowa." <laughs> and, and then there's a kind of discussion: is it Iowa or Iowa? And apparently, it was pronounced by some locals as Iowa. I looked this up, like back in the day. Um, it was even sometimes written out that way phonetically in in writing of the time. Um, but the pronunciation began to change then as the century wore on to Iowa. And the name itself comes from the indigenous people that lived in the area at the time. So 
Yeah, which I could not find a definitive answer on how they themselves pronounced their tribe. I did find a modern member of the tribe who pronounced it Iowa. That's about okay. what I could find. There's probably the information is probably findable, but I have a finite amount of time. So, yeah, absolutely I understand. Yep. Yeah. And River City, as mentioned, was based on Mason City, Iowa. Uh, it had a population of about 7,000 in the early 1900s, which is bigger population than my hometown had when I was growing up. So I think it's, it does probably doesn't look like River City did. River City looks like tiny. Wow. I didn't know you grew up in that small of a town. Wow. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a 5,000 person town, but it was also a tourist town. So like in the summer, there were like 50,000 people in my town. And uh, in the yeah. rest of the year, it was like 5,000 people. So Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we did have some amenities that other towns of our size would not have had. But like Wisconsin, you know, when I was growing up, it was very different from like Iowa in like the early 1900s. There are certain things that I can identify with of this like Midwestern vibe that they have in this movie. But like in a lot of ways, it's just as foreign to me as it would have been to you, like living in Pennsylvania. So, you know, yeah, yeah. So interesting fact I found out today in Mason City, Iowa, you can visit Meredith Wilson's childhood home, as well as this like sort of indoor location they've set up and called Music Man Square. So Music Man Square, it seems like they've just sold, set up these like mock storefronts that are supposed to kind of look like the buildings in the movie. And I don't know if there's much you can do there. I think they have, might have some exhibits, but the house probably has more, you know, historical information. If you want to see both locations, adult admission is $10. So if you're ever near Mason City, Iowa, you can have like a Music Man movie experience there, basically. Oh, I find this fascinating. <laughs> if I ever am in that area, I'm going to go. I feel like this is like so fun when you're talking about kind of like these little spots, you know, that you can kind of travel to or visit. Like if you're, if you like to do road trips, right. Or if, if yeah, you like to kind yeah. of like go to like these really like unique spots, like in, you know, the continental U S uh, to try and find like these little like gems. Like for me, like I really want to visit the uh, Christmas story house in oh, Cleveland okay. and I've never been, but I want to go. And so I feel like now that I'm like a music man, like, uh, you know, Stan, I want to go <laughs> to this, uh, to, to this home and to see these storefronts because this is fascinating and I want to see that. And I think that this would be really cool. Well, you definitely have to tell me if you're passing through that way because I'm sort of close to me. So we'll do a little tour. Oh, yeah. excellent. <laughs> Good to know. All right. Thank I've, you. I've actually seen the Field of Dreams in Dyersville, Iowa, where they, you know, had film, filmed the movie Field of Dreams. And that was have pretty fun really? too. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. fun. Okay. Wow. I got to get into the Midwest more. All right. All right. <laughs> So the, the actual song, Iowa Stubborn, is kind of about the character of Iowans. And it's like sung by all the townspeople as a group. It kind of like now reminds me of like the song in um, Beauty and the Beast, where like all the townspeople are talking about Belle, like that sort of thing where it switches from person to person singing the song. I'm sure a lot of Broadway songs do this and not just that. That shows you <laughs> my cultural right. level. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll sing a little bit of it. Um, part of the song goes, unless you want to sing, but I'm, I'm happy to sing because I'm ready. Oh, no, please go ahead. Please okay. go ahead. So I'll sing just a little bit of it. This is different people are singing all these parts, but I'm not going to make different voices. We can be cold as our falling thermometers in December if you ask about our weather in July. And we're so by God stubborn we could stand touching noses for a week at a time and never see eye to eye. But what the heck? You're welcome. Join us at the picnic. 
You can eat your fill of all the food you bring yourself. You really ought to give Iowa a try, provided you are contrary. Okay, I had to do kind of a low voice for the last guy. So good. <laughs> anyway, it's 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 got all these funny lines like you can eat your fill of all the food you bring yourselves. It's 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 kind of um we're nice but not that nice. We're right. We're, <laughs> we'll shut you out, but we'll help you if you're in a real jam kind of thing. It's it's an interesting uh, song. Did anything strike you about that? Like, is that does that match your impression of what somebody from the midwestern rural community might act like, or? I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I could see that, you know, again, uh, living probably in a small town, it's more community, I would hope, like kind of base where you're helping your neighbors and, you know, uh, whether or not, you know, sometimes you run across really prickly people, other times you run across really friendly people who will go above and beyond for you. And so I can absolutely see this. And it does seem like it does touch on that, right. And I do love too that they talk about like the weather, right. And so I can even, I can't even imagine Iowa in December, right? Like I grew up in Pennsylvania and in the snow myself, but it was lake effect snow. It wasn't kind of like this, like, you know, Midwest kind of like understanding of snow. But yeah, this was really cute. I really, really enjoyed every single kind of person's like thought. And then again, like the way that they were like all in line and dancing and singing and doing all this, it welcomes you in, right? And this is like another song that welcomes you into the place that you're going to be centered in and what these people kind of view themselves in the understanding of this community. Yeah, it's like really seamless exposition because you don't feel like you're getting exposition because you're just enjoying the song. So that's, Absolutely. That is the what musicals can do at their best, really, is give you a story without making you feel like you're being given a story, kind of. Yeah. But there's less dancing in this than there has been in our previous musicals. They do dance a little bit, but like not much. Like it's more just like the singing is the center in this part of the musical so far, which I think for that to be the case, you need to have really interesting lyrics, which Meredith Wilson really does bring to the table. I agree. And I think for me, too, it's kind of like this whole understanding of the way that this is set up. And again, it's like the band kind of thing, because everybody comes like in on their section, right? And like, in band, this is what you're taught, you know, you come in on your section, and then you give it all in your section. And then you kind of like, blend into the background so that other people can get their sections. And then you come cohesively together as a band in order to like, you know, create this uh, understanding of what uh, this song and what it produced for each member within this band and in this town, it feels like. Wow, that's a really interesting insight. Yeah, with his experience in the band and his experience composing symphonies, it may have brought him a different understanding of how to utilize the different voices in the company. That is so cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. So we'll do a little bit of plot break now just to tell us what happens in the plot. So we have Harold Hill runs into his friend Marcellus. And Marcellus calls him Gregory. So this guy's really not named Harold Hill. His real name's Gregory. Gregory what? We don't know. But I always think of him as Harold Hill. I never think of him as Gregory. (laughs) either. (laughs) And Marcellus tells Harold that he's kind of gone straight and he's not, you know, running cons anymore. He has a girlfriend, Ethel Toffelmeyer. She's in the movie. She's the one who like sort of pretends to play the player piano. all the time which is yeah I didn't even notice that when I was a kid and now I look at him like oh this is a whole gag about like there being someone playing the player piano yeah I thought that that was really cute where she would just kind of like look and just like ah you know like type of thing and then the mayor like had like a really great interaction with her too I thought that was great 
Yeah. We also get from this scene that Harold plans to seduce the local librarian so she will not interrupt his plans. And he asks Marcellus to identify her to him. And meanwhile, we now get a scene that we're going we're gonna to talk about a little more in depth, where Mrs. Shin, the mayor's wife, is headed over to the library to complain to Marion. And I have a little clip of this scene, and then we can, we can discuss it a little bit in light of, I work in a library as a page, and you work in a more professional position in a library. I can't, I can't remember your exact title again. I'm sorry. Like, Archivists of Black Collections, is that correct? Or am I getting yes. it wrong? Nope, that is exactly correct. Okay, yep. fantastic. I want to correctly identify people's positions as much as possible. All right, so let's play the clip now. Good afternoon, Mrs. Shin. Don't change the subject. Is something the matter? The same thing is the matter as is always the matter here. Look. Is this the sort of book you give my daughter to read? This ruby hat of Omar Kai? I, 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 I am appalled. I did recommend it. It's beautiful Persian poetry. It's dirty Persian poetry. People lying out in the woods eating sandwiches, getting drunk with pitfall and with gin, drinking directly out of jugs with innocent young girls. No daughter of mine Mrs. is ever... Shin, the ruby out of Omar Khayyam is a classic. It's a smutty book. Like most of the others you keep here, I dare say. Honestly, Mrs. Shin, wouldn't you rather have your daughter read a classic than, than Eleanor Glynn? What Eleanor Glynn reads is her mother's problem. Just you keep your dirty books away from my daughter. Yeah, that doesn't sound unfamiliar today, does it? Oh my God. When this came up in this, I was just like, whoo, Lord, this is exactly kind of the same language that is still used to this day when people are trying to ban books, right? There's like yeah. a whole movement, unfortunately, now to ban books that have quote unquote, offensive material, right? Yeah. And the offensive material nowadays is the understanding of marginalized identities, but, uh, you know, trans and queer and non-binary binary people, like, you know, having quote unquote representation uh, within literature nowadays. And so when this came up, I was just like, my goodness, like I, you, you would think that society and that we as humans would, potentially maybe kind of learn from these like things but it just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again and i can absolutely see somebody like mission coming into this library at this time and having an issue quote unquote with some of this and then again this is like you know as a librarian as a person who is committed to providing information and resources to folks to expand you know potentially their understanding of the world and who they are as people in the world this really strikes just like i want to say a a dagger of fear in us but in a lot of respects it's just kind of like you know, our mandate is to provide, again, information and the understanding of culture and who you are in the world. And then when people have a problem with like a literal, like, again, what was in this book? Uh, eating sandwiches in <laughs> Ikea. 
right? She specifically calls out eating sandwiches in a field. And it just like, how is that offensive? Like, yeah. what is that? Like, yeah, I actually, I actually looked up um, what a potential verse might have been that would have offended her from this Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, which was um, published in 1859, but it was attributed to um, a scholar born in 1048. And th this is the verse that she may have been talking about, according to some people who've looked into it. A book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou, beside me singing in the wilderness, a wilderness where paradise are now. And like, I guess like maybe it was like, you shouldn't be an unaccompanied female on a date with a guy. It was maybe what it is. It's like, you know, what's shocking really depends on where, what time period you're living in, I guess. And I guess that was enough to shock uh, somebody in 1912, perhaps. I mean, Apparently. maybe Meredith Wilson knew what he was talking about here because um, he grew up in that kind of environment. And certainly, like, I remember, like, not our library, but in our school, um, our school paper got censored because I reviewed the movie Blazing Saddles for it. And because oh it had an God. R rating, um, my review of Blazing Saddles, not Blazing Saddles itself, and I didn't use any swear words, whatever, but just the fact that I reviewed Blazing Saddles was enough to get our paper censored. Wow. Oh, my gosh, Jen. Wow. That's 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 out of bounds like and this is what's like frustrating and i don't understand you know about some of this stuff it's like so we do know that things evolve right and we yeah. do know things change so wh why can't we as a society grow learn and change from those you know good bad changes um into a better and enlightened people and society and but we keep repeating the same things. And this is this is why this is, in a lot of respects, so frustrating, but not surprising in a lot of respects when you're talking to people who are either librarians or work within a library and understand just how yeah. prevalent and just like insidious this can really be when it comes to the access to information. I want to come back to the prevalence in a second, but like what you're saying, like um, there's this tendency to suppress information, I think, when you feel that your political side is at some disadvantage. And I think the prevalence was like, only coming on the, from the right for the most part when I was growing up. And now I feel like it's certainly like most of these ban book bannings are coming from the right. But I'm also seeing more of an attitude of like suppressing information from leftists trying to suppress right wing information, particularly on the Internet a lot. And I'm I'm personally kind of more of a free speech. I'm almost a free speech absolutist, I would say. I, I lean way hard on free speech. So I just I don't like the tendency on either side because I feel like the information needs to be there. And what we need to be doing better is like teaching people uh, critical thinking skills, teaching people how to sort through information, teaching people maybe philosophy, like techniques to kind of think, like learning how to think so that people can look at this information and come up with conclusions that are educated is basically what I think. But yeah. Right. And I think a lot of this, too, is like in the discourse of the misinformation, disinformation, uh, you know, sphere as well. Right. Because, as you said, right, with the Internet and with the availability of people to just put out. Yeah. Things, yeah. Right. I think, too, has a lot of it where, you know, we've kind of you know, dropped this gatekeeper kind of uh, mentality where it's filtered up through a gatekeeper and that gatekeeper is the one that kind of holds, you know, the line where misinformation, disinformation and the ability for folks to gain access to that. And we've broken open so many of these gatekeeper things, which is a good thing in a lot of respects, but at the same time, it can also produce 
this kind of wave of misinformation and disinformation and people only getting their sources or their understanding of the world from this misinformation, disinformation stream. And that is like a huge, huge issue nowadays. Yeah, we almost we almost need like a new way of teaching people just how to sort through you know, the information that is available to them um, in a way that kids in previous generations really didn't require. But I mean, even like when there were gatekeepers, like gatekeepers often had their own interests too. Absolutely. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's an eternal problem of how do you determine which information is factual and you have to teach people skills just to, for them to be able to verify this is accurate because you know, it's from a primary source or, you know, all these different skills that you have to learn. We don't have time to go into them all right now. But no. Yeah. But yeah. That's the digital literacy part yeah. of a lot of this education that is missing nowadays that we refuse to input into or we're trying to. And this is where a lot of this like critical race theory bans and like all of this stuff is starting to like show its face. Right. Is that we're trying to teach these kids these skills in order to assess. Mm. But then folks don't either see that as a benefit or they see it as you're trying to disrupt, you know, my, their understanding of how I, you know, how the world is. And it's just like, how? And so, but yeah, this is like a whole, like a whole podcast that we could get into <laughs> where this is concerned. Yeah. But yes, this, for this, I was blown away that again, this was a mirror of exactly, again, what we are seeing nowadays and how it has not changed. And it's while it's cute, but it's also disheartening at the same time. Yeah. So just to go back to the prevalence really quickly, I just wanted to share something that I looked up and you're probably aware of this too, but for our, for our listeners, the American Library Association said that book ban attempts in public and school libraries reached a record high in 2022 with more than 1,200 challenges and many of those challenges were made to multiple books at a time. So that's not 1,200 books. That's just 1,200 challenges with many books involved. And also the count could be higher because the American Library Association bases its numbers on media accounts and then libraries that self-report these challenges. So, and then of course we have Florida has like three different laws right now that are causing particularly school libraries to have a lot of problems because they have things about their need, a library media specialist needs to check it now to see if there's pornographic content. There's like this stop woke law, which is like, as far as I can understand, you shouldn't make students feel guilty or responsible for the past actions of other members of their race is what the New York Times says is in that law. And then there was um, the law, of course, about they're not supposed to teach um things regarding gender and sexuality. So this has caused all these libraries, of course, famously to some of them take all the books out. Some of them are just taking a lot of the books out. And this is more school libraries for that, but it's starting to filter over into the public libraries, according to an article in Time magazine. The school library challenges are then inspiring these conservative groups to say, well, actually, we don't want these books available in our public libraries either. And they're trying to defund and disrupt public libraries also. Yeah, this is like a, another like whole huge thing. I am not a public librarian. I'm not a school librarian. I'm in an academic library on a college campus, right? And but unfortunately, you know, Florida isn't an outlier, right? We got uh, here uh, in the state that I live in, Arizona. These laws are starting to come up in our legislature, and we're starting to hear kind of like the rumblings of you know these types of laws potentially getting passed here in Arizona as well. And so this is a really kind of frightening time uh, that we're living. In. In where this is concerned because it feels like there's like a full on, you know, top to bottom kind of attack in a lot of respects 
of the information that you know, especially younger children are being denied and what that can do for people who don't identify as a cis, you know, heterosexual person, right? Like, and what that can do as a person who is uh, non-white and the ident- and the things that you see, right? And like, you know, because representation matters, right? In a lot of this and these type of bills are absolutely causing havoc. Uh, not only in schools, but in the general understanding of people and their place within their community. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the ways they're going about it are quite sneaky, too. Like they're trying to like defund the library, you know, and and I don't know if that's something that could actually, you know, if you could actually build a court case on that. I mean, even if you did build a court case, who knows what the current Supreme Court is going to make of that. It's just a really sad time and uh, we need to, unfortunately, you know, fight and get out there and elect better representation and leaders who understand this. But again, this is like, it feels like this, I don't think is going to be a fight that is just going to stop in our generation. It's just going to keep going and going and going and going. And um, it's just sad. It's a really sad time. I just think like if you support your library, if you support your local library, like make that vocal and be regular about it. And like if you are the type of person who can afford to like maybe donate to your local library and go to meetings like local political meetings, if you're able and just like express that support and try to get people who elected who are going to continue to make sure your library gets funded because a lot of this is happening on the local level. So absolutely. Yeah, yep, absolutely. That's why regional elections matter, right? It's yeah. not, can't just be those national uh, elections. You got to really be focused in on your regional and local elections as well, because this is where this stuff is really uh, taking the fight to. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for like talking with me about this. I'm glad that we have library people on the show today. <laughs> Yay. We're going to move on now to You Got Trouble, which is maybe one of the most famous songs from this entire uh, movie. It's the one that is kind of replicated in the trailer. And this is like, this song is inspired by Harold Hill needs to come up with some kind of angle with how he's going to sell the townspeople on his band. And so he asks Marcellus, what's new in town? Marcellus tells him that this pool table is new in town. And it's funny because a pool table, I had to look this up. A pool table is different from a billiards table because a billiards table didn't have pockets and it just had three balls and you had to just hit the balls in different ways. That's like literally all the difference between a pool table and a billiard table. But um, apparently this might have been kind of the point. Like this author, Linda Holmes from NPR, did this great article where she kind of breaks apart this song and shows how this is like a classic example of how somebody kind of creates a moral panic. The, The funny part is that it's like he's creating a panic about something that's like totally arbitrary and stupid <laughs> like like there's no, nothing bad's gonna happen because of this pool table right but he's right. somehow whipped these people into a frenzy about it okay so i unfortunately forgot to get a clip of this song but i'm gonna do just a little bit of harold hill's patter song about this uh pool table you're gonna have to take my word for it that he does it a lot better he starts out talking to this guy uh by the pool hall and he's talking about how he likes billiards and then he says but just as I say, it takes judgment, brains, and maturity to score in a bulk line game. I say that any boob can take and shove a ball in a pocket. And I call that sloth, the first big step on the road to the depths of degradation. I say first medicinal wine from a teaspoon, then beer from a bottle. And the next thing you know, your son is playing for money in a pinchback suit and listening to some big out-of-town Jasper here to tell about 
horse race gambling, not a wholesome trotting race, no, but a race where they set down right on the horse. Like to see some stuck-up jockey boy sitting on Dan Patch make your blood boil, well, I should say. Now, friends, let me tell you what I mean. You got one, two, three, four, five, six pockets in a table, pockets that mark the difference between a gentleman and a bum with a capital B and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. Anyway, <laughs> that's so good. Yay. <laughs> and he's always saying um, trouble that starts with T and that rhymes with P and that stands for pool. So that's like this kind of refrain that he goes back to. And eventually he's got this whole crowd whipped up going trouble, 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 trouble. This song and this part of this is so good because this is like the thing they go back to every single time that how, like you said, like he whips up like so many people because like it only starts off with like a couple of people. And then by the end, like it feels like the whole entire town is in this square listening to him. They're just like, yeah, you make a really good point. And they're just (laughs) like, they're like hanging off of every single word that he is. And I'm just like, Ooh, this town is in trouble. You can tell like by this point, like, Ooh, this guy is, great and he is going to get this town like in on his on his con yeah and it's so like it's so weird to watch this like in the era of like kind of trump like the post-trump hopefully still post-trump era and just like the ways that trump played on people's weird fears and like whipped them up too you know and i'm sure many politicians have done this of course throughout the decades too but trump had this particular weird like almost salesman like charisma that he used for these same kind of purposes. So it's like, it's like this in this musical, it's kind of happy and funny, but in our real politics, it's kind of like, Oh, I don't know. He sold, he tried to sell him his big wall that of course he never delivered. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And this is also like the part of the movie. And I think we'll get into this like a, a little bit later, just to kind of about like that underlying, like how it's so easy to whip up people into a frenzy Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. Um, Especially if you're a non-white person in this Mm -hmm. like whole thing. So we'll get into that. But yeah, like when I saw this, I was just like, oh, this is so amazing. Oh, it's a little scary too at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This Linda Holmes article that I'm going to put in the show notes really got me thinking about this angle of it because she just, she goes through all these different steps he goes through, like first introducing the fact that there's just a change and a change is scary in itself. And then she, then Harold Hill starts connecting this change to things like drinking, um, out of town people, a stuck up jockey boy, which kind of represents the elite. Um, then a fear of sex where we have the dance of the armory that Harold Hill brings up. And then we've got our racism, a little echo of racism in here. It says ragtime, shameless music that will grab your son, your daughter in the arms of the jungle animal instinct. So ragtime, yeah. of course, was from the black community and, right. you know, the, the kind of bare, barely coded language of jungle animal instinct. So that's like there's no black people in this musical but there's just no. like echo of like racism, even within the song. And it doesn't necessarily imply that Harold Hill is racist, but that he's using this fear that these townspeople might have of other people of other races. So it's, it's, kind of, it's still there, you know, and it's still kind of something that, yeah, I can see where the discomfort comes in as an audience too. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, and then like sort of the end of his patter, like they also show him like making the same pose as the town founder and he's like linking himself to Plymouth Rock and stuff like that. He's trying to link himself to like the American tradition, supposedly, right? Or like our our noble past. I'm putting all this in air quotes, by the way. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's such a it's such a technique that is used. And so when you, if you can use this song and just kind of see a microcosm of our some of the macrocosm problems we have, and it's it's fascinating. I don't know like how purposeful Meredith Wilson was, like and how how much of it was satire and how much of it, how much of it was just him observing people. But it's yeah. it's very interesting to see. I think I completely agree. Completely agree. I found it very enjoyable, but as I said, you know, it was enjoyable, but that undercurrent just kind of just like, oh, okay. But again, another knockout performance by uh, Robert Preston. Oh my God. Oh yeah. He is so good in this section of this movie. Oh. So we come now to a quieter song, um, The Piano Lesson and Goodnight My Someone. The Piano Lesson is also a conversational song between Marion and her mother. Basically, the scene is intended to establish that Marion's mom wants her to find a man and that Marion feels that the people in town aren't very educated, but she, and, but she's also romantic. And she starts then heading into the song, Goodnight, My Someone. I thought that this was such a sweet kind of like section of this. And, you know, again, talking about like a mother-daughter relationship, especially at this particular point in history. Uh, and her mom's just kind of, you need to find a man. And it's just like, oh, nowadays I'd just be like, whatever, you know, like type of thing. But at that time, I'm sure that this was like a talking point, especially for ha how old uh, Miriam was at this time mm -hmm. and what that meant for somebody in her age bracket. And Shirley Jones's voice during this song, so amazing i so think good. you're referring to good night my someone in that case oh yes yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I meant. Yeah. yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That, that part that of it so good i i yeah. can i can almost hit most of the notes and so i used to sing this as a lullaby to one of the kids i nannied for and it yeah oh. he really he really liked that one so that's so sweet <laughs> oh so cute yeah and i also like that this is like the intro of winthrop right and like yeah. why how we get to like see him and kind of like some of the you know like little things that are going on with him and why why, why it's important he's a part of this story yeah little little ronnie howard comes in with his with his lisp and amaryllis who is the student of marion kind of has a crush on him but she like laughs when he lisps her name which is kind of sad like i'm like uh I know I felt so bad for Winthrop when she laughed because he was just like, what the heck, you know, yeah. and it was just like, oh, little Winthrop. I got to wonder, like, I didn't look this up and I wish I had now. I'm kind of kicking myself. I wonder if Ron Howard did have a lisp as a child or if he was just that good at acting it out. Because I was like, that is hard to emulate, I think. That would be interesting. Oh, we'll have to go back into yeah. his uh, Wikipedia IMDb and, and, and see if <laughs> that is like something that's brought up. So we come now to 76 trombones, the scene where we hear this song. And um, this scene starts with the local people meeting for a 4th of July celebration, I think, inside the high school. Uh, they have a lot of weird stuff going on in here. So first of all, the mayor, Mayor Shin, keeps like repeatedly start trying to start the Gettysburg Address, which is really <laughs> random. He just keeps going, four score, and then people keep interrupting him. Oh, uh, this is this is so funny. <laughs> And then we have this, like, the women's group led by his wife are doing this, like, fake Native American dance. They come in, like, pretending to count in some Native language, and they have this little group that they do this stuff with. Definitely, like, when school performers have, like, 
redone this musical. They've changed it to be other things. I've heard they've changed it to be like Washington Crossing the Delaware or something like that. Um, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to hear that because that really is a talking point within the Native American indigenous circles is just like cosplaying as yeah. an indigenous person and, you know, just in general racist mascot names and stuff like that and how that really affects that community. And so I'm happy to see that they've transitioned away from this as time has gone on because it's absolutely needed and warranted. And so this Native American, fake Native American presentation is interrupted by um, Tommy Gilles, who is a kind of prankster, and he like lights a firecracker behind Mayor Shen's wife, and it kind of introduces his character as being someone the mayor doesn't like. And then in the background, while all of this is going on, Harold Hill starts shouting about the pool table in a way that it's not noticeable that he's starting it. And then everybody else starts shouting about the pool table, like, oh, yeah, that pool table, we got to solve this problem. And then he gets up on stage and he gives his pitch that a boys band is going to solve the entire problem. Again, another good kind of transition into, you know, Harold's kind of ability to whip up this town and sell, you know, quote unquote, sell his pitch about you need to, you know, we need to have a band and we need to have young people be a part of it and what I need from you and what this looks like. And yeah. it was just great. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed this part uh, of it as well. This is one of the numbers where we first see people really dancing, too. Like, we have a lot of younger dancers then in this scene, um, young men and young women coming out. It is kind of sad that it's a boys band and the girls don't get to play in it. Because, yeah. yeah. I was really sad about that, too. I was just like, man, like, all of these women, you know, girls could be a part of this. It was like, nope, it's all dudes. It's just like, man, that yeah. stinks. If you're a woman, you get to be a majorette, apparently. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> Everybody's like super into this like song though, the 76 trombone song where Harold Hill recounts like some mythical day where he saw all these band leaders come together and they follow Harold out of the gym, out of the school gym or whatever, and down the street. And it's kind of, I think a Pied Piper reference, like, like he's just kind of like sort of enchanting the townsfolk. And then outside while all this is going on, Marion points out to Mayor Shin that Harold is a salesman and maybe he should find out about his credentials, which the mayor agrees to. We also now see Tommy Gilles again. And Mayor Shin, um, in talking about Tommy Gilles, I didn't notice this when I was a kid, but this time I watched it, I noticed that he points out Tommy Gilles is part of a Lithuanian family south of town. And I'm like, wow, like this is like, Yes, as we noticed, there are only white people in this movie, but like this is still in the stage in America history where you were like dividing the different types of white people into the the good white people and the bad white people. Right. It's like I mean, the side of the tracks, right? You're from this side and then I'm from yeah. this side. And yeah, you're absolutely. Lithuanian or like back in the day, it was like you're Italian or you know what I mean? It was like this whole right. like it's like you're not I don't know, English or German, I guess, where is acceptable. I don't know, maybe French, uh, whatever. Like it's it's it's. Like they're pointing out that Tommy Gilles is some kind of outsider in this situation anyway. Mm -hmm. But Harold says he will be responsible for Tommy. And so the mayor ends up leaving. And then Harold ends up unwittingly setting up Tommy Gilles to go on a date with the mayor's daughter, Zanita. Like he doesn't know this is the mayor's daughter. He's just like, let's let's get Tommy Gilles interested in the band and, and also get him a, a lady to hang out with so he won't cause trouble. Um, and Tommy Gilles throughout the whole movie has this like catchphrase. He says, great honk. <laughs> and then Zanita goes, "Ye gods!" <laughs> like all the time. So you said you said you enjoyed these characters. What is it about them that you found uh, kind of enjoyable? 
I don't know. It was just the way that they came together, right? And and then at the same time, these two actors, like they played off of each other so well when they were in scenes and just kind of like the way that Tommy is, uh, you know, just kind of like, again, this kid from the wrong side of the tracks. And then you have Zanita, who is the mayor's daughter. And I, I love kind of like these opposite attracts or wrong side of the tracks, like type of romances yeah. because it just feels like it, it provides like that, like, mm, yeah, you know, love conquers all like type of thing. Yeah, for sure. So um, now the mayor Shin has sent the school board members to ask for Harold's credentials. And this is, this is one of my favorite things in the movie. Harold distracts the school board members by noticing that they have different sort of vocal ranges and then forming them into like a barbershop quartet without them really noticing that that's what he's done. <laughs> and this, yeah, this killed me when this like happened and then consistently continues to happen. I like so funny, so funny. And like the, the thing about the school board is they've been notorious for all fighting with each other constantly, but by forming them into this quartet, they all now like each other and they all just walk around town singing songs for the rest of the movie. And the first song they sing is something called Sincere. And I like the majority of these barbershop songs, like there's only one that Meredith Wilson didn't write, which we'll get to, but like the rest of them, he wrote these and they seem like they were just like classics that must've existed in the 1900s. I'm like, how did he do that? Right. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by a, a quartet, right? Or people who come together and have like that ability to, you know, put their ranges together and create just like this beautiful sound. It's yeah. so amazing. So Harold then tries to hit on Marion. She rejects him. He tells Marion he graduated from college in Gary, Indiana, class of aught five. By the way, why don't we bring back this aught thing? I like this. <laughs> You know, I was, I actually was talking to my partner about this. And I feel like now that we're past like the, you know, the from 2000 to 2010, I feel like I'm hearing more and more people who reference that time as the aughts. I'm just like, oh, oh, wow, this is kind of interesting. But yeah, I found this really cool. And uh, it doesn't come up all the time. But I have heard some people say that like aught five, right? Or yeah, aught yeah. six. And you're just like, oh, okay. I'm going to totally tell people I graduated from college in aught nine from now on. It's going to be, oh, it's going to be a thing. Yes, <laughs> Portland I State love. University class of aught nine, bitches. Yes, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Anyway, um, Harold then also gets the mayor's wife on his side by um, kind of complimenting her on her grace and natural dance skills when she's actually just moving her foot around because she has a bunion. And he makes her chairperson of the ladies auxiliary for the classic dance, which he obviously just makes up on the spot. But like he's now got the mayor's wife on his side, as well as the school board with their little barbershop quartet that he can distract at any moment. So. And so good. So good. <laughs> that interaction with Mrs. Shin leads into the song Pick a Little, Talk a Little and Good Night Ladies. So Good Night Ladies is the only song in the movie that Meredith Wilson didn't write. I forgot to write down who wrote it. I can put that in the show notes for you, but it was like kind of an older song. But Pick a Little, Talk a Little is one that he wrote and it blends perfectly with Good Night Ladies. Buffalo Bill sings Goodnight Ladies at the same time that the women sing Pick a Little, Talk a Little. The songs blend together, which is not the only time he will do this in the movie where the songs blend together. Uh, what do you think about this uh, particular number? I found this very interesting because, you know, this is like a really gossipy song, right? Because this is where we get a lot of exposition about Marion and why she's in the position that she is and what 
you know, the town people in some respects think of her. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's basically insinuated that she like either slept with the guy who left her the library books or that she was trying to or something. Yeah. Like, so it's really kind of harmful and damaging gossip for Marion. Um, there's a, there's a line and it goes, he left River City, the library building, but he left all the books to her. And then they talk about the books that they don't like. Chaucer, Rabelais, Balzac. <laughs> and the rest of the song is kind of going, pick a little, talk a little, pick a little, talk a little, chick, 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 talk a lot, put a little, pick a little more. It's really hard to do. I love that these books keep get, getting repeated to these authors, Chaucer, Rabelais, and Balzac. I have to admit, I have not read any of them. This movie wasn't even enough to pique my interest. I did, I think, read a, a smattering of the Ch- Canterbury Tales because it's like this big classic. But same, I, yeah, same. I did not find anything particularly smutty in it. But then again, we know that Mayor Shin's uh, qualifications for smutty <laughs> books are pretty low. Like you can eat a sandwich in a park, and like... right. Okay, right. <laughs> we get to go along to the song "Sadder but Wiser Girl." It's a song that Harold sings to Marcellus and Amaryllis, interestingly, the young piano student is there too, listening. And it's basically the song is about how Harold is not interested in dating a virgin. He wants a woman who's been around the block so he doesn't have to worry about getting married. And part of the lyrics for this are like, I snarl, I hiss. How can ignorance be compared to bliss? I spark, I fizz for the lady who knows what time it is. I cheer, I rave for the virtue I'm too late to save. The sadder but wiser girl for me. So that's that's the kind of lyrics we have here. I mean, they're good lyrics, but I don't think it stands up for me to some of the other songs in the movie in terms of like its uh, cleverness, perhaps, or resonance. What about yourself? Do you like it? Yeah. Like it? No. I, I did enjoy this because, uh, again, this for me is a lot of like, the, again, another solid song that brings in a lot of context of why Harold's, you know, is the way that he is. Like, he's not really trying to have a project, right? Like, he wants somebody who is established, right? Who isn't like somebody that he has to like, do a lot of work with, like, you know, or just like, chase after like a lot right and so he wants somebody who he knows that you know he knows what he wants and that is what he's going after and i appreciated that that he has a very particular understanding of what he wants to get into and what he wants to avoid and he completely clearly states that in this song i just like it's so funny like at the end amaryllis is just cheering and i'm like does she she doesn't understand this song no. <laughs> she doesn't know what's going on here she's too young for this yeah. song Oh, yeah. Anyway, we move on then to one of my favorite songs in the movie. Like when I was a kid, I absolutely adored this song. Now I think I've come to appreciate some of the others more, but it's Marion the Librarian. And okay, sorry, guys, you're going to get way too much of my singing on this episode. Like, um, <laughs> um, but for example, he goes, what can I say, my dear, to make it clear? I need you badly, badly, Madam Librarian. Marion, if I stumble and I busted my witch and we'll call it, I could lie on your floor unnoticed till my body had turned to carrion. Madam Librarian. I'm pretty sure some of that was out of tune, but it's fucking, it's a great fucking amazing song, I think. Like just coming up with the idea to rhyme carrion and Marion in the first place. Yes. Oh man, this song and this scene. It, oh, 
it's just you can tell like this is when uh marion really starts to like drop her defenses where harold is concerned just uh by the end and like i love to like again how he whips people up like into kind of like this thing and everybody then just starts like dancing and singing yeah. in this library and it just like again it only takes one person right to get people kind of wound up and the song and I do love that Madam Librarian. I I love that. It was so cute. And if I was Marion, I probably would have been like, yeah, this dude, I'm I, I think I'm in love because <laughs> it's just so so cute, so amazing. And the way that they like go up and down the stairs, right? And yeah. they use like the whole set. Like they use the entire set for this song. And it's just so cute. I loved this part of this movie. Yeah, apparently, like, Anna White, the choreographer, had a lot to say about how this scene was done. And she kind of, like, I, I think revamped it a little bit for the movie. So I really shout out to her for, like, the, yeah, like you said, they use the whole set. They use all the the environment of the library to such an advantage. I also love, too, that Tommy and Zanita are in there, right? And yeah. Doing, like, their whole cute little, like, young couple thing in here as well. It's, like, it feels like for me that's, like, a really interesting comparison to, like, the way that Harold and Marion and Tommy and Zanita, uh, like, are acting. Because you got, like, young love, right? And then yeah. you have a man who is, like, chasing after a well-established person. Yeah. A person who has, like, their guard up and, like, you know, is very suspicious of people. <laughs> They also have Tommy and Zanita like behind a book of Romeo and Juliet. So they're kind of setting them <laughs> up as this like comedy version of Romeo and Juliet, basically. The one thing about this movie now, now that I work in a library, I get hit on a lot by people I would rather not be hit on at, this, at my library job. Um, I would say at least once a week, some dude comes in and either says something inappropriate or starts following me around the library. Like it just happens all the time. So like on the fantasy version of this, where it's like this kind of, charming Robert Preston singing a song to me. Love it. The real, the real version of this is usually not very fun. And like, it's dudes. I think some dudes don't even know what, like that they're crossing a line sometimes, but no. they are. Yeah. This yeah. is like, I, and your job, I think it's probably more of a rarity, but in a public facing library job for women librarians, especially this is a real problem. <laughs> yeah. This is unfortunately a, a major talking point, especially within public libraries. Cause like one of my very first jobs was as a library page and I used to get creepers mm, all the time, mm -hmm. like either following me, asking me questions, kind of coming in and just like kind of clocking me. And I'm just like, Oh, there goes that person. I got to like go in the back or I got to yeah. go like way some far where that they're not going to try and find me. And if I see them at the corner of my eye, I like, you know, like shuffle off into another place. And, you know, there's continues to be like these sexual harassment, like uh, situations, unfortunately, especially yeah. where, because uh, the majority of librarianship are women, right? And so this is unfortunately the reality of the situation of women librarians, especially within public libraries. Um, this type of attention is can get very scary and very un unfriendly in a lot of respects. Um, yeah. But this is, you know, again, that good that good version. But as you said, <laughs> yeah. so many bad, so many bad interactions with creepers. It is out of bounds, out of control. I mean, if you're going to come into my library and try to hit on me, at least like bring a song and dance routine. Like it's like the <laughs> least you can do. Come on now. Absolutely. Like, yes, get an original song, get a dance. I want to see it. Yes, yes, yes. 
I mean, not to be flippant, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it can be a headache. It can be a headache for sure. And I think like, there's also this kind of fetishized version of like what a a little librarian is like, and she throws off her glasses and pulls down her hair. And she's like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we're just trying to do our job. We're just like literally trying to come and do our job like anyone else. So, right. Yeah. And I do love too, that they do kind of like the tropes, right. Of librarians where it's like, shh, you right. You know, she's like, shh people in like you know again the glasses and I loved Marion's outfits like all mm, of the shirts mm-hmm. that she had like in this movie I was like I would wear that shirt I would wear <laughs> that shirt I would wear that shirt because they were so cute and but yeah like so many like hard like librarian tropes uh were in this scene as well and I was just like oh no wonder why people get the impression you know to even to this day of just like we're like shh be quiet you know like type of things it's just like mm, well yeah. it's in it's in pop culture <laughs> yeah exactly and like and then she's using her stamp too to make a rhythm like I kind of missed the stamp right. that was kind of fun yeah oh those were so fun so we come now to the song Gary Indiana. This song comes up because Harold is selling Mrs. Peru a cornet for Winthrop. And um, we find out in this scene that Winthrop has been quiet and troubled since his father died two years ago. And Gary Indiana is a song that Harold sings to Mrs. Peru to just kind of tell him about his alma mater, his supposed alma mater. And the funny thing about this song is that like, Gary, Indiana is like this place that's kind of notorious for smelling bad. <laughs> and th- th- that's what it's kind of known for now. Like we would go on car trips, like places and where I lived in Wisconsin, you would naturally go through Gary, Indiana to go south. And so like we would sing the song every time we went through, but it was just like, that's the place that smells really bad, like with industrial oh, whatever. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I wow. Don't, I don't okay. know if you've had any interaction with Gary, Indiana. You probably remember if you had. Yeah. Like I've never been there. Uh, the only reason I know of Gary, Indiana is because that's where Michael Jackson was born. And really? Raised, and that's where, yeah. That he, that's his hometown is Gary, Indiana. Uh, that's the only reason I know this town at all is because of that well there you go all right now there's two things i can associate it with all right because mostly it's the music man and smelling bad but there's something else now all right cool i actually oh and actually i just want to say i don't know if it still smells bad it did the last time i was there that's all i'm gonna say sorry people of gary indiana if your town in fact smells better now yeah, I was going to say, this is the song that literally stuck with me for days after I watched this. Uh, I could not get this jingle out of my head for <laughs> literal days because of this. In uh, my partner, too, like he was just like, I could hear him humming. And I was just like, are you humming, Gary? And he's like, yeah, that thing is real catchy. And I was just like, it is. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah, for sure. It's an easy song to learn, too. That's the thing. Yeah, so it's it's one of the songs that's more approachable from the musical as well. So we now get to a song, the only one that was kind of partially changed to the movie, Being in Love. And this is kind of Marianne is talking about, like telling her mom, I do want to fall in love, but I have this kind of ideal man that I would like to fall in love with. And she kind of talks about his attributes and also talks about how she would like somebody to be in love with her and this song is so high her soprano is so high in this song i would love to be able to sing it but i cannot really sing do it any justice whatsoever her voice shirley's voice in this was outstanding it was so beautiful and for a person who loves music i appreciate music but can't sing a lick ooh, yes 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 give me people who can sing these high soprano alto whatever it is uh uh parts of this because i'm always fascinated by people that can hit those high notes Mm -hmm. okay so after this being in love scene we move on to the wells fargo wagon scene and like 
It's so funny. I had like no idea what the Wells Fargo wagon really was for years and years. Like, and I finally looked it up for this podcast. I mean, they show this little wagon in the movie, but like, I actually ended up looking it up. So the Wells Fargo wagon was kind of the Amazon of the 19th and early 20th century. It was founded by Henry Wells and William Fargo, and they founded that company in 1852. And if they are also the founders of the bank, Wells Fargo Bank. So it's like they were associated with each other at the time. And the, the wagon, the shipping element of the company was for providing delivery services primarily to the West in light of the gold rush. And like, so this was going on for some time, they were sending wagons out. But then like when trains started coming in, they started sending the Wells Fargo things through the train lines as well. So actually like in the movie, they portray a wagon coming, but the fact that a train comes into town probably meant that they would have shipped it on the train. That's a really nitpicky thing, but there you go. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I guess it wouldn't be as good a visual to just have some random train car come and be singing the <laughs> Wells Fargo wagon anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so this stopped in the early 1900s, the banking and delivery sectors of the company split into like the Wells Fargo Bank and then the shipping element. And then during World War I, the government nationalized the shipping routes and that ended the shipping element altogether. So I just think like in case you're like me, have watched this movie a zillion times and never had any idea about all this. That's what went down. Sorry if it's too nerdy. <laughs> There's like a whole history of Wells Fargo being just a really terrible company in general. Um, but the inclusion of this and I was just like, so fascinating. So interesting. Because <laughs> yeah. I used to also bank with Wells Fargo. I don't any longer, but I used to bank with Wells Fargo. And just again, to see the long legacy of this company and then them being included in a, a musical like this, I was blown away. Yeah, now and now you're like watching this movie. There's like cute little song about right, right. <laughs> I mean, I guess Amazon has enough problems too, though. So there you go. Oh, like all God, these companies yeah. that are so big that they can deliver these kinds of services are often very problematic, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. 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 But back to the cute little song. Everyone's super excited about the wagon coming because it's their mail coming, basically. And they're talking about things they've received before, like somebody got. Um, a grapefruit from Tampa, somebody else got a, a Mackinac, which I guess is a kind of coat. Like they're all just talking about, this are the things we got and these are the things we're expecting to get in. Um, and then finally, this, this number is so significant because finally Winthrop receives his cornet and he also begins singing because he's so excited about receiving his cornet. And he's this kid who doesn't talk really. And now he's right. singing. And so this is like this big transformational moment in the movie where Marion is so excited that her brother is happy and singing and talking that she decides that she's going to destroy evidence she has found that Harold couldn't have possibly gone to um, this Gary Indiana Academy because Gary Indiana did not exist in the year that like he said he went there. So she's um, getting rid of the evidence that he doesn't have credentials because she just wants her brother to be happy. This is so cute. Like this whole back half of this and just the look on Marion's face and Winthrop just being like, oh my God, like this is mine. Like, you know, and just, I think Ron Howard plays this up so well, like, and just the connection. And then, yeah, you can absolutely see like, this is when Marion's like, yeah, I really like this guy. <laughs> and he has made really significant strides for my brother and I'm going to do what I can to help him. I think that yeah. is, is just adorable. Yeah, you not only see it, but I'm pretty sure they play like an excerpt, um, an instrumental piece of being in love. Like they play that in the instrumental section underneath her 
meeting with Harold and, and Winthrop with the cornet. They and it's do. Like, yeah. So it's yeah. cueing you. Oh, she found something here. She's she's into him. They also do this interesting thing um, in the movie, throughout the movie. They do this thing where the whole part of the screen is black, but then they, you see these characters in the middle highlighted, which apparently is called the iris in, iris out effect. And it was used a lot um, in silent films where they they make like the iris of the camera bigger and smaller and like they make it so it's highlighting just one area of the screen. So I thought that was really interesting. And then so after this interaction with Marion, he's going up to the boys in the band and he's telling them about something called the think system that they they have their instruments now and now they have to think about the minuet in G, which kind of goes da, 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 da. Da da da, and if they hum that to themselves, supposedly they're going to figure out how to play this on their instruments. <laughs> oh, again, gotta love this con man and just what he's coming up with where this is concerned. So good. Yeah, I tried to like look this up and see if anyone's ever successfully used this. I could not find any evidence that anyone had. That doesn't mean there is nobody in the history of the world who's done this, but I feel, I feel like it would be incredibly difficult. Like when I had my clarinet. Like I had to learn how to like put on the reed even just to like how oh, to put the God. instrument together. Right. Yes. Let, let alone to figure out how to play a song. Like, Right. And like what you like different, like, t- like the way that your tongue needs to be like tense or mm-hmm. not tense and mm-hmm. like the different. Yeah. Like the same with tenor sax. We had reeds too. And like all of that was like very complex and interesting uh, to learn. And then also in a band, you're not necessarily all playing a melody. Some people are playing just like little, accentuating pieces so there's just no way there's just no way it would really work but like we're suspending our disbelief i guess yep absolutely (laughs) so we have some more plot developments we see the ladies auxiliary dance committee at work practicing their dances where they're (laughs) making these like shapes that are supposed to be grecian urns i guess they're people dancing on a grecian urn or something i don't really understand that part but it was hilarious agree and then we have Mayor Shin discovers Tommy Gilles at the sort of soda shop with Zanita and gets angry. And then finally, we have Harold in the same soda shop it asks Marianne to kind of go out with him. And she's now at this stage pretending that she doesn't know he's a fraud and pretending to be like interested in the think system. This is so this is really complicated for me because I do love this movie and like I still love it. But like generally, I kind of hate it when they make an intelligent woman character play dumb. Like, I I don't know why this is an exception for me. Maybe it's because Shirley Jones is portraying intelligence in her face and she's kind of playing a game on him at the same time in a way by like pretending to be dumb. But I don't know. It should really bother me and it doesn't. And I'm not really sure why. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with this because this kind of trope does bother me in a lot of respects too because then it feels like after like she quote unquote like any character like in this kind of like realm like after she becomes in love like everything kind of falls away, right? Mm -hmm. It's just about the dude, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is why this trope is so kind of insidious in some respects but it does work here because Marion is still kind of like, you know, even though she is engaging with Harold, she understands kind of like he's, he is a fraud, but he's helping. And that helping part is more significant to her than it is the fraud part of that. Um, And so for me, yeah, I do agree. Like this trope just in general really, really bothers me. But for this, it didn't bother me in a lot of respects because I felt like she still had her standards. She still had the understanding that, you know, she wants a dude, she wants somebody to love her. Right. And it feels like 
you know, once we get to like this point, they're both kind of in that, I think I really like this person and maybe in love with this person and, uh, and what that, what, what that shows and, and how that develops between the two of them is really cute. Yeah. Like I'm never really sure at what point Harold is actually in love with her, but like, I think maybe it sneaks up on him. Like, yeah, yeah. you can definitely tell towards the end and we'll get to that. You can definitely yeah. tell. So now we come to like one of my kind of favorite song blends in this movie, um, Lie to Rose and Will I Ever Tell You. Lie to Rose is a song that Harold tricks the barbershop quartet people into singing instead of getting his credentials. And so then good. Will I Ever Tell You is one of Marianne's kind of like love songs. And um, Meredith Wilson has perfectly blended these uh, two songs together. He wrote Lie to Rose, which blows my mind because it just seems like it should be just some traditional American song. Yeah, wow. And P.S. My cat's name um, is Dinah Rose. (gasps) We we now sing Lie to Rose, but we replace it with Dinah Rose. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) And she totally knows when we're singing to her too, which is really cute too. (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. We're going to now play a clip of, of this song, Lie to Rose and Will I Ever Tell You? just briefly. off now even though i could listen to that song all day so So good yes yeah i just i love the way the songs blend like i don't know if like i should i shouldn't i should probably know this but i don't i don't know if this was common to like kind of kind of mash up essentially songs at that time but it's basically a mashup and it works so well it does it very much does and he does this like again with pick a little talk a little and good night ladies earlier in the musical as well so yeah this might be one of my favorites from the whole musical I love a, a, a quartet, right? Like, and it's just, it works so well. And again, Shirley, her voice is very, it's just so smooth through yeah. all of this. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And this is her like declaring that she's in love now too. So this is yeah. a big moment for her. So then um, before we get to the spoiler section, there's just a little reprise of Gary and Deanna. This time Winthrop is performing the song for his mother and Marion. So this is Ron Howard's or little Ronnie Howard's big moment, as my dad would say. 
So good. Again, this is like another reason why this song is just stuck in my head because I have little Winthrop in my head just like singing this and like the way that his mother and his sister are looking at him and they're just like, oh, this is so great. You're so amazing, right? Yeah. It's just so cute. So now we're going to begin the spoiler section of our podcast. So if you've not seen The Music Man and you don't want to be spoiled, please uh, leave us now, go watch The Music Man and come back and join us. Okay, so spoilers now. So you can mention anything that happens in the rest of the movie from here on out. Excellent. So we get to some plot here. Um, The anvil salesman is back from the first scene and he's in town and he's pissed at Harold Hill and he passes by Marion and announces his intention to expose Harold Hill to the rest of the town. And um, Marion's like bought into this whole uh, like Harold Hill thing at this point. And she can tell that the anvil salesman is uh, sexually attracted to her because he's kind of a creep. And so she tries to distract him by seducing him so he won't have time to expose Harold. Oh, I can't. The Anvil Salesman character is so gross in this. Like, so nasty. And I, I, so another thing about this movie too is that I'm, I love the luggage that people come into town with because Harold Hill has like his name on his luggage as he's coming in. And then the Anvil guy, I think it just says Anvil, right? Like on his luggage or something like that. And it's just like, it's very pronounced, like what these people are doing and all of that. And yeah, that Anvil guy is a creep, like such a creeper. Yeah, he keeps calling her girly girl, like, hey there, girly uh, girl. It's like, oh, and he's like looking her up and down very blatantly and all this crap. And like, I'd like to spend five minutes on you. Like, Yeah, so gross. And speaking of his luggage, when he drops his luggage, it's like, like this big, deep noise. Like he's been carrying this <laughs> anvil around all day. Yes. <laughs> So yeah, so she she sort of successfully distracts this guy, but we're gonna see him again soon. Um, then we see, and he also plants in Marion's mind like kind of a doubt about Harold, like maybe he's got a woman in every town. So Harold comes by, and Marion asks him about like sort of hints at other women he might have been involved with, and he sort of in return says that there's rumors about everybody. And so she says, like she was left the library books because the guy was her dad's friend, so that's all kind of cleared up. Um, and now Harold knows that she's a virgin and he, supposedly he doesn't want anything to do with virgins. Right. Right. <laughs> He's just like, Oh, well, okay. But he nevertheless invites Marion to the footbridge, which I guess is the uh, notorious necking spot in town probably. And um, this is weird. There's this moment where like he asks her to be there in 15 minutes and she's like practically hypnotized and you see like the screen kind of wavering and stuff. I noticed that too, and I didn't know if that was intentional or not. Oh, for sure, but I don't really know why. Like, very interesting. It's like she's like fifteen minutes, and you get this wavery screen, like to show that she's in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a thing. All right. Any more to say about that, or should we move on to Shapoopy? <laughs> let's move on to Shapoopy, because man, oh man, wow. Let's let's talk about it. Well, I want to hear your thoughts on it first, actually. I've got tons of thoughts on this, but what do you make of this number? So I, I thought it was cute. I thought it was amazing. Buddy Hackett did such a great job like with this song. And it's so catchy and so weird in a lot of respects, too. Yeah, like some of the song, it kind of goes, Well, a woman who'll kiss on the very first date is usually a hussy. And a woman who'll kiss on the second time out is anything but fussy. But a woman who'll wait till the third time around, head in the clouds, feet on the ground. She's the girl you've glad you're found. She's your shapoopy, 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 
That girl is hard to get. Shapoopy, 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 but you can win her yet. And it's like the main part is like Buddy Hackett singing. And then the that girl is hard to get is the crowd singing. This is also a yeah. big dance scene in the movie. This is probably the most prominent dance scene. And um, you have some aerial shots of all the dancers. All the women are wearing these really pretty pink dresses. Yeah. It's supposed to be at the ice cream social. So I think it's supposed to kind of match that kind of vibe, right? Like right. the guys are kind of in these cream suits. It's very well designed. I appreciate it much more now. When I was young, I did not like this song at all. I could not stand <laughs> it. And I hated the thing about the woman will kiss on the first date as a hussy. I'm like, gee, thanks, dude. Ugh. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I I totally hated it. But now, like, I like I kind of like it now, weirdly. Like I've got Stockholm syndrome with Shapoopy now. Maybe it's just appreciating the artistry and the dance and Buggy Hackett's like he has really given a good performance. So he does yeah and i found like again the visuals of this so cute like you said like you know that top down like version of and seeing like the people spinning right and like the colors and like the whole thing of it was just really really well done and i i, I really like this so an interesting thing i found out is that for the 2022 broadway version of this that had hugh jackman in it um and sutton foster they redid the lyrics to shapoopy and like I don't really like that, but it's kind of weird that I don't like it because they changed it to be more like um, sensitive to women. It's like they changed it. Well, a fellow who goes on his very first date is usually shy and fretful. And a fellow who tries for more than a kiss will end the night regretful. But a fellow who waits for his girl to say when, head of the town, shout amen. He's the guy she'll date again. He's her shapoopy. And it's like shapoopy, 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 the boy who tries his best. Shapoopy, shapoopy, shapoopy to pass a lady's test. And I'm like, this sounds like a good message, but it doesn't sound as good. And it's definitely not 1912. And for me, I was kind of like, well, I'd rather have the kind of offensive version, which is weird. I don't know. Like, like, how does it strike you? Like, do you have any thoughts on it? I mean, you're just hearing about this, so I don't expect yeah. you to have a fully formed thought about it. No, I can, and, and you know, again, I feel like, as you said, I think the update to the lyrics is somewhat interesting. Uh, I can see why people, especially if you grew up on this, you know, it's kind of, it is a bop, like it is a kind of a bop, right? And so to update it and to have it be reflective of the male kind of part of that, you know, I could see that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhat interesting, but yeah, again, as a person who just recently yeah, 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 yeah. watched this, I, I, I don't have strong feelings, but it seems like it's an interesting, and for me, again, you know, as an update for the modern times, it feels appropriate and in some respects uh, falls in line with the general message of what the original Shapoopy, you know, line that you sung right there was trying to convey. Yeah, for me, well, for me, they're conveying like kind of opposite things. Like they're conveying that like, um, like, a woman, a woman, like they're kind of almost slut shaming women. And on the on the other hand, this song is kind of like telling guys like it's more of a message of consent. So it's going from like kind of a misogynist message to like a feminist message. You would think I would love that because that's the reason I hated the song when I was a kid, right? <laughs> but I think it's it's maybe because like I've in this viewing, I found Meredith Wilson's lyricist ability to write lyrics to be so strong that you almost have to have just an equally strong lyricist to just like the, the tempo of the words, like the way the words feel in your mouth, kind of. I think that's what it is. Like the word hussy is like terrible, but it's also really fun to say. Right. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not like flattering, right? But it's really fun to say hussy. It sounds good. <laughs> 
yeah, I agree. Like, you know, kind of you need that like same kind of caliber lyricist uh, to develop and, you know, update the song. And maybe just this particular version didn't have that, which is unfortunate. Yeah, you need kind of a verbal virtuosity. But like, I think for me too, like, um, I don't know, for me, I think it's sometimes good for people to understand that like women didn't always have the rights we have just because it shows you how far we've come. But I don't know. Right. It's kind of different versions of art. Like, do you want art to reflect reality? Do you want art to show like the kind of morals we should have? It's been it's a timeless debate. Like it's been going on since Plato, for goodness sakes. So absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So now um, we come to the a footbridge, footbridge scene where um, Marianne sings Till There Was You. You, if you heard if you heard that song before, because the Beatles covered it and such. Yeah, I have. Uh, I didn't know that it was connected to Music Man, but I have heard this song. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful song. I think um, it's definitely. I can see why it's the one that got changed into a pop song. Um, it's a little simpler, and le- it's not really connected to the to the story as much as some of the others. Um, right. Yeah, I I love this song. I love their kiss too. They get they kiss in this scene too, and it's like a really like they don't. These days, you don't see as many kisses where people just linger on the kiss as long as they do in this movie. Right. I agree. Yeah, this was such a cute scene. Because again, this I think is where I finally like saw that Harold is like, he's like, I, I, I like this lady. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like really invested in this. And my con is starting to uh, present a problem here for me. And uh, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the song is basically about like how Marion's talking about how he's brought so much to the town, like, and brought so much to her life, like bringing her this like sense of romance. So that's kind of what the, the song's about. Um, oh, interesting fact, interesting movie facts. Shirley Jones was pregnant for the shooting of the music man. They, unfortunately, this sounds terrible, but they had her in some kind of corset to make her look smaller, which, oh, which no. doesn't sound like it would be good, but I mean, her baby is fine. Her baby grew up to be a man. Um, but like while they were kissing on the footbridge scene, apparently like nobody knew she was pregnant except for like the director or something. And the baby kicked um, Robert Preston <laughs> and totally freaked him out. <laughs> that is like, I can't believe that she was pregnant during this because yeah. And now this makes sense of why it wasn't really like noticed because they had her in a corset because she was like six months pregnant wasn't she or something like this um, I think I read that I she don't was... know how many months but yeah but in, but enough she would have been showing for yeah yeah for sure yeah and so but yeah this this whole cute uh scene and I I love that you know just like an antidote that you know while they were kissing the actors like you know had like this like personal moment and just like whoa okay <laughs> I think it's even the scene they use too, which is hilarious. So that's, that's great. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then let's see. Um, Marcellus shows up and tells Harold that it's time to leave. The uniforms have arrived. It's time for him to get out of town. Simultaneously, Marianne tells Harold she's known that he's fraud for some time, but she's like kind of let it pass because of what he brought to the town. And now things start happening really fast. So the anvil salesman's in town. He informs everybody that Hill is a fraud. I love this line. He calls the townspeople boneheaded, square-toed, tank town boobs. <laughs> I thought that that was great, too. <laughs> I don't even know what a tank town is, but it sounds really insulting. Yeah. Tank town boobs. Yeah. That- <laughs> Um, um, let's see. And then, oh, and did you notice this? Like, I just noticed this, this viewing. Um, there's this moment where Mrs. Shin's listening to all this and she's got her Grecian urn costume on with like this toga and these fake grapes. And she like eats one of the decorative grapes off of her outfit. 
No, I actually didn't see that. Oh my God. It's just this little moment. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Hermione Gingold is hilarious as Mrs. Shit. I just, yeah. yeah. She's so good in this. So now the town, like you said, the town has now been whipped up. They, they've whipped up the town again. And this time it's to find Harold and they're talking about tarring and feathering him. I'm not going to go into what that is, but if you know, don't know, like Google that, it's interesting. Um, and Marcellus sets out to warn him that this is happening. And and while this is all going on, um, Harold has followed Marion back to her house. Um, she's going to get a wrap or something. And they're oblivious to the town going crazy. Uh, he's outside the house singing, singing 76 trombones. She's inside singing Goodnight, My Someone. But then they do this really cool thing where like Harold starts singing Goodnight, My Someone and she starts singing 76 trombones. And I like it. It's like a symbolic thing where they're starting to see from each other's points of view. Right. Yeah. I thought this was really cute in the way that they switch it. Like it just like gradually switches between the two of them. I thought that that was really cute. Yeah. Yeah. And now we come kind of the finale of the film. So Marcellus catches up to Harold and lets and Marion and lets them know about the townsfolk. And Marion urges him to leave. And then Winthrop comes running into the scene. And I'm going to sh share a clip now of this uh, important scene amongst them. Hold on a minute, son. I'm not your son. Let me go. No, not until I talk to you a minute. I won't listen. You wouldn't tell the truth anyway. I would too. Would not. I would, Tot. Tell you anything you want to know. Can you lead a band? No. Are you a big liar? Yes. Are you a dirty, rotten crook? Yes. <laughs> Let me go, you big liar. Well, what's the matter? You wanted the truth, didn't you? Now look, I'm bigger than you are, and you're going to stand there and get it all, so you might just as well stop wiggling. Now, there are two things you're entitled to know. One, you're a wonderful kid. I felt so from the first. That's why I wanted you in the band. So you stop moping around and feeling sorry for yourself. What band? I always think there's a band, kid. What's the other thing I'm entitled to know? Well, the other thing's none of your business, come to think of it. I wish you never come to Reverend City. No, you don't, Winthrop. Sister, you believe him? I believe everything he ever said. But he promised us. I know what he promised us. And it all happened just like he said. The lights, the colors, the symbols and the flags. What was all that? In the way every kid in this town walked around all summer and looked and acted, especially you. And the parents, too. Does Mama wish he'd never come to River City? Well, you do, don't you? No, Winthrop. You better go, Harold, please. Go on, the feather. Hurry up. I can't go, Winthrop. Why not? Well, for the first time in my life, I got my foot caught in the door. There was love all around, but I never heard it singing. 
No, I never heard it at all. Till there was you. Oh, feels. <laughs> I know. God, this scene. Oh, so much. Like, it's just so heartbreaking, but so like delightful too when he was just like I got my foot caught in the door and you're just like oh my god like he finally he's just like I have a reason to stay like I love somebody there's no reason to do this con and I want to be a better person right and it's just like yeah Harold we love you (laughs) right and there's so much emotion too in that line where he says I always think there's a band kid yeah oh so teary-eyed during all of this even this clip i was just like whoa yeah and ron howard's acting as a child was so good like as we said like just yeah he's so effective in that role as well so like you tell yeah he found this male role model and now he's like oh it's all lie and just oh yeah i know it's just so heartbreaking and then i think you know like with marion coming in and kind of you know not changing Winthrop's mind, but, you know, including her opinion. And he, and that's what he was just like, so you don't agree? Or, you know, it's just kind of like, I think Winthrop was taken aback by that in some respects. Uh, and and I think that's what gets him to, you know, warm back up to, to Harold is when Marion comes in and, and does what she does yeah. for him. And then him singing the romantic song. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so everything, everything I love about oh, this. Yeah. Everything. So good. So good. Okay, so we move on from this. Um, Harold gets taken away by the townspeople. There's a town meeting that's taking place the same night. Everybody's in their ice cream social outfit still. Um, Marion gives an inspiring speech to the townspeople about what Harold has done for the town. And the town is beginning to buy it. But then Mayor Shin reminds them about the money they've spent on all this stuff. Um, just as they're about to turn on him again, the band members arrive in their uniforms. And Marion urges Harold to like conduct them. And he's very unwilling to do this at first, but then he goes up there and he's just like, I'll try, I'll try. And um, he starts kind of just making the conducting motions. He's like, think men, think. And they somehow come out with this really shoddy version of the minuet and G, but it sounds like the minuet and G. And it's way better than what you would actually be able to achieve with this, by the way. Right. Um, although it did say something about they paid for instruction books. So maybe the kids like read the instruction books. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that is a good point. Yeah. So maybe that is it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Harold can now read the instruction books too and get a clue. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the parents are so excited that their kids are like making noises with their instruments, which, which really rings true by the way, like elementary school band concerts. Yeah. Parents get excited about very little. Um, (laughs) I bet I'm not a parent, but I'm sure (laughs) that is the case. I'm not a parent, but I remember it just from being a kid. Like parents would be like super excited about like what seemed like not the best output. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And then um, so that so everybody's fine now, and like apparently Harold's going to somehow conduct this band. And um, the final scene moves into an even even more fantastical thing because the band members exit the school building. And their costumes and instruments kind of magically zap into better and flashier instruments and costumes. And like Zanita's sitting there looking at Tommy, like with like love in her eyes. And she's zapped into this majorette uniform, like these quick cuts that make like change her into this uniform. And then this like huge band comes out of the high school. They're all tall now. They're not like tiny little kids anymore. They're all like just proper adults playing 76 trombones. And it's like a whole thing. 
Yeah, this whole scene blew my mind, like from the transition from when they're inside to outside. I was just like, did, did this entirely change? And it was just like, yeah, it did. Like like you said, <laughs> literally adults. And you're just like, and like everything just gets bigger, flashier, just more like grandiose in yeah. this part of it. It's it's fabulous. Yeah, the actual band in this scene is played by the Spirit of Troy, which is the University of Southern California's marching band. And so, yeah, gone are the small little kids. And and then this band marches down the main street playing 76 trombones as a credits roll. And you see the different townspeople with their, their credits under them. And I love it. But it's like, it's weird. I wonder, like, I didn't I haven't seen the actual musical version. I wonder how they end that because they can't possibly end it exactly the same way. Um, I, yeah. I wonder with the movie, is it like this is meant to be how the town imagines their band to be? Does their band become I, better? I don't know. I wonder if this is like the fantastical part of it, right? It's like the out of the realm of reality, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. This whole part of that. So, but yeah, that's a good point. So any final thoughts about the movie as a whole before we kind of like do a sort of a side discussion about kind of issues of like race in this movie? Because I think that's something we wanted to talk about. But any final thoughts about the movie as a whole? No, again, uh, as I said, this is my first time seeing this and I was pleasantly uh, surprised and love it and probably will go back and uh, try and watch uh, it again and find some more that are similar to this. So just in general, fantastic time. So, yeah. So one thing that um, kind of came up when we were doing a preliminary discussion about this movie and which also came up actually when this movie, when this musical was being mounted in its most recent edition on Broadway is kind of the issue of race in this musical and this movie, because this is an all white cast, of course, in this movie. And a lot of times on Broadway, it has been a all white or mostly white cast, although apparently that has been changing over the years. And the most recent version of The Music Man on Broadway did have a cast that included black actors, including um, the role of Zanita was portrayed by a black actress on Broadway. I, I found out about this because I was reading an article in the New York Times by black linguist uh, and professor John McWhorter. And he was kind of talking about like some of the issues involved in this. And he was talking about talking to musical actors um, in the 80s, black musical actors in the 80s and like how there were so few roles for them. And it's kind of continued to be a problem, but like we're starting to see more kind of race blind casting in these uh, kind of musicals. But then it also raises different issues, like similar to the sexism issue of like, how do you like, what is it? What is the implication when you're taking this like kind of 1912 Iowa atmosphere and doing race blind casting? It kind of rubs up against the reality of what was happening. And is that erasing things or is it just making a better environment for actors today? Like, it's, there's so much to talk about here. So I'm going to shut up now. And I'm going to, I kind of want to hear what your kind of your initial thoughts were on kind of watching this movie and any other thoughts that you had. Yeah. So as I said, you know, when, um, when I very much like noticed that this was like, there's like an undercurrent of like being a black person and watching this, they're definitely, uh, especially as we talked about when Harold came in and he did that uh, number about the billiard hall, right? Mm -hmm. And like, again, how that can kind of, one single person can whip up kind of a frenzy of a topic or of a person or of a thing and have people like be so like invested and dedicated in like the understanding that this is bad or this is a problem uh and that being a crowd of only like white people historically um you know uh i hope most folks know that you know 
the large part of the reason why, and this is a trigger warning, uh, especially if you're Black, uh, lynchings and a lot of that stuff happened to Black men specifically was because people got riled up and that whole situation turned into a mob mentality, right? And mob justice. And this, for me, was kind of like that, there was the tones, there was kind of like the feeling of that underneath that. And while, you know, again, Harold didn't like whip these people up into a frenzy about somebody who, you know, shouldn't have been there, but he did whip people up into a frenzy of kind of like, you know, as we said, like things are bad. And then you're talking about, uh, you know, uh, kind of like that little like line that we spoke about earlier about um you know black music or uh the inserts of kind of like this understanding that this is an all-white town right this probably was a town that had a sundown town uh or just no interaction with anybody outside of the white race and so what that feels like as a black person watching these types of things it can be enjoyable but there also is that undercurrent of kind of the understanding that you weren't welcomed, right? Mm-hmm. And this would have been like a huge issue for you if you showed up in a town like this. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Like, and yeah, it's, but it, there are universal themes in this, certainly that like, I think affect all people, but then it's like, um, yeah, it's not representing like a wide swath of people. And I don't think Meredith Wilson set out to do not represent people. I think he was just like, he, Iowa's like now, I guess the sixth whitest state might've even been whiter back in like his day. I don't know, but um, he's representing just like what his experience was, but that experience right. doesn't speak to everybody else's experience. Certainly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's like the point or the understanding, right. Especially of movies of this time, right. You know, um, a majority of these movies were for a white audience created by white people for white people, right? And so, um, you know, and again, for storytelling, you can only go off of, in a lot of respects, your own experience, and then that comes out in your creative product and what that looks like compared to somebody who may have an intersectional understanding of race, of the understanding of people, and what that shows up for in a creative work can be either problematic or refreshing in some respects. So, like, I was thinking about, like, I didn't really like that they changed to Poopy, but I thought it was good that they had, like, diverse casting. And at first glance, that felt to me, like, like hypocritical of me. Like, on the one hand, I want them to keep, like, the misogyny of the 1912. <laughs> on the other hand, I want to have, like, this diverse world. But when I really thought about it, I thought, like, I think the difference is that, like, diverse casting is giving a material benefit to actual people in the world. You know what I mean? It's letting Black actors have a chance to, like, ply their trade, essentially. So I think that might be what the difference is for me. Like, I want there to be opportunities. And certainly, like, that's not the only answer. There need to be, like, musicals that are written in the interest of Black people by Black people for Black people. Like, as you said, all this culture, so much culture was written for white people. But, like, um, yeah, I think both things are good, though. Like, having representation within maybe traditionally kind of thought of as white scenarios, but then also having more representation on the level of directors, writers, producers, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, growing up, I only knew of one black actor slash dancer that was Gregory Hines, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was the only one that I had a lot of like 
understanding of that he wasn't just an actor, but he was also like, um, you know, a person who danced, who did tap and like, uh, and I didn't see him in many musical, quote unquote, musical roles. But I know by this time, you know, musicals kind of fell out um, in a lot of respects uh, for folks. But yeah, that representation is critically important. And I think that's why, you know, people like Sidney Poitier, uh, you know, people like who were like, of black actors of this time and the ways that they showed up in roles was significant. And I think, you know, uh, uh, a lot of these uh, p- black actors at this time couldn't, right, mm-hmm. probably get a role like this uh, on the same level of Music Man that Robert uh, um, uh, Preston got and stuff like that because they were limited in the understanding or there wasn't room for Black creatives to tell stories like this at that time. And so what that did for the genre and what that did for people, um, you know, still to this day has a lot of impact on p- the way people see themselves in the world. Yeah. yeah. And especially back in the day, Broadway was like a pipe pipeline in a lot of ways to the film world. And when Broadway wasn't presenting and offering those roles for um, non-white actors and singers and dancers, um, that made it harder to get into the movies. And even in our last movie, On the Town. So On the Town, the Broadway version did have an integrated cast. It had some, um, it even had like a a Japanese American lead for one of the lead roles. But then when it came to the movie, the racism in Hollywood prevented that from from happening in the movie. So um, yeah. 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 Wow. Any any other thoughts you want to talk about, like just like that point of view on the music man or? We- no, not really. But again, just in general, like I said, I greatly, greatly enjoyed this movie overall. But the but for me, again, as a black person, to not see a single black face. While nowadays, you know, that is somewhat of um, a contentious thing. Back then, it was probably pretty, pretty, uh, um, you know, standard to not really have actors like that. And so, you know, in some respects, you have to view this as a a movie of its time. But then uh, for especially somebody who doesn't like watch a lot of old movies, it's it's kind of jarring. There is like one musical I saw, which was kind of interesting, like um, called The Pirate with Gene Kelly and Judy Garland. It is a bonkers musical, but like they, it did feature this scene where these actors and dancers called the Nicholas Brothers, who are a black um, dancing team, um, danced in a number with Gene Kelly. And what I read is that's like the first time a white actor and some black and white and black dancers had danced in a number together where they were touching each other on film wow, and this was like sometime really? i think in the late 40s that this was the case so that's wow. i mean it took so long right like it took so long for things to get even to that point so yeah still but there's still stuff to do for sure yeah issues to think always about. it is yep yep absolutely all right so um i guess we'll now we can go to our double feature recommendations And my first double feature recommendation is going to be Victor Victoria from 1982. And this is, of course, the musical where Robert Preston um, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He appears in the movie with Julie Andrews, who is the star, and James Garner, who is kind of her romantic interest in the movie. And Robert Preston's character in this movie is actually like a gay man who is a performer and becomes a friend to Julie Andrews. So that was really great in 1982, like a positive portrayal of a gay man and Robert Preston playing him. And he sings a couple of songs in the movie. He sings a song called Gay Paris. And he dresses in drag at one point to sing The Shady Dame from Seville. 
And he does a duet with Julie Andrews called You and Me, which is a really nice, charming duet. So Robert Preston has sang with like my two favorite female voices, Shirley Jones and Julie Andrews. And it's just, it's a, it's a fun movie. It's um not all the songs are up to the par of like something like the music man, but some of them are great. And it's a funny kind of a plot. Um, Victor Victoria, Julie Andrews character is a woman pretending to be a man, pretending to be a woman. She can't get work as a regular female singer, but one day like people think that she's a female impersonator and she's so good at being this female impersonator that they give her a job. So it's like this whole screwball plot basically. Interesting. I, I've heard of Victor Victoria, but yeah, again, have not have not seen it. I should probably put it on my list after uh, this because I'm all, I'm down for all uh, Robert Preston <laughs> movies. So give them to me. <laughs> so uh, mine is, uh, as I said earlier, uh, one of the musicals <laughs> that I that I remember as a child uh, seeing and uh, consistently uh, loving every time I saw it was. Uh, uh, Little Shop of Horrors, the 1986 movie uh, with uh, Rick Moranis, Ellen Green, Steve Martin is in this, Jim Belushi is in it, John Candy is in it, Bill Murray's in it. So there's quite a bit. Uh, it was directed by Frank Oz. Uh, the screenplay was by Howard Ashman. Uh, so yeah, so this was probably one of the only musicals that I ever remember uh, uh, seeing as a child and that I consistently go back to as something that uh, is a little jingle uh, in my brain anytime I either I hear about Audrey 2 or hear anything about a musical and what that brings. So uh, hopefully most folks know of Little Shop of Horrors, the 1986 uh, uh, musical. Uh, but yeah, one of my favorites, something that I always uh, tell folks to go out and see because it's just amazing. I haven't actually seen that version, but I've seen parts of it. So I should, I should check it out. Yeah, it's really great. I, I highly recommend it. So my second double feature recommendation is The Courtship of Eddie's Father um, from 1963. And this is a movie that Shirley Jones appears again with little Ronnie Howard. And in this one, um, she is, um, so she is like the across the hall neighbor from Ron Howard and his dad. His dad is played by Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford's wife has just died and Ron Howard is like kind of interested, like, are we going to have another mother for me? Like, et cetera. And he really wants it to be Shirley Jones's character because she was like a friend of his mother. She's a nurse. She's a really nice person. And so it's kind of a, just like a little romantic comedy where uh, Glenn Ford is like dating these different women and Ron Howard's trying to match make his father with Shirley Jones. And it's very sixties, you know, it's very like that kind of filmmaking but I found it kind of fun. And like, uh, I think it would be actually a really good uh, double feature with the parent trap too, the 1960s version. So either oh, one. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of this either. So uh, again, another movie to put on, on the list. Cause uh, uh, again, I need to see more uh, little Ronnie Howard uh, when he was a child. <laughs> So my second one is, uh, I tried to lean more into the conman uh, mm -hmm. kind of part of this. And so uh, A Fish Called Wanda, 1988 movie with uh, John Cleese, Kevin Kline, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, and all of that. And so it's about, you know, a conman uh, in London and kind of like how he's trying to double cross folks. I remember seeing this movie as a kid. It wasn't one that I've come back to because I am a, a fan of Kevin Kline, but I like some of his other movies. But yeah, Fish Called Wanda, really cool. I know a lot of people like really, really love, um, you know, this movie just in general, because there's a lot of like these like 
1980s like stocky like things that happen and jamie lee curtis is just freaking amazing in yeah. general with everything that she comes through with uh so yeah fish called a fish called wanda 1988 uh movie highly recommend uh definite con man uh uh kind of vibes and uh yeah if you haven't seen it go out there and watch it I really like that you went with the con man angle because I like haven't watched enough of those types of movies. I have seen that movie when I was a kid, though, Fish Called Wanda. I do remember finding it funny when I was younger. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So my last double feature recommendation is I went with another kind of rural small town musical for my second last one. Plus, I became obsessed with Gene Kelly when we were doing On the Town, like obsessed. And I watched all his movies with Judy Garland. And so I'm recommending Summer Stock from 1950, which he did with Julie, Judy Garland. Gene Kelly and Judy Garland have such good chemistry in all their movies together. And I think this is my favorite one with them because Gene Kelly's playing a really kind of a nice character in this one. He's playing a director of a theater company and his theater company kind of invades Judy Garland's farm because her sister is part of the company. And it's kind of like this uh, contrast between the theater people and the farm people. And there's all these like jokes about these fish out of water trying to figure out how to like, you know, do farming stuff. And then there's like these fun like song and dance numbers and performances. And then there's a romance developing between Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. And I think they have a lot of chemistry in it. And there's also this, there's this fabulous musical number. Okay, maybe it's just me, but there's this musical number in the movie where like Gene Kelly and one of the other guys are playing these like hicks. And that's not the funny part. But the funny part is they bring on these dogs onto the stage and they start out with like three dogs and then they cut away. And I'm like, wouldn't it be great if like they came back and there were like six dogs and they come back and there's like eight dogs. And I was, I was like, <laughs> this movie just read my mind. It gave me exactly what I wanted. I was like so excited about that. I don't know. It's the little things really. I feel like I've heard this about Gene Kelly in a lot of like he has great chemistry with a lot of people is what I remember hearing. I, you know, again, another part of this that I'm missing that I, I, I don't I have not seen a lot of Gene Kelly movies, but I've heard of kind of like him and that he was like, you know, that type of man where he can like have on screen chemistry with like a lot of people and it'd be fantastic. I think that is really true. But I really do think there's a special thing that goes on with him and Judy Garland. Like it really I think both of them are enhanced by acting against the other person. Because like, I've never really liked either of them better than I do when they're like acting together. So Interesting. summer stock, I think like the songs are not up to the level of the music man. The dancing is great. The plotting isn't up to the level of the music man, but like there's something about just those two being together that it just, it grabs me. And it, it is, there's the funny, it's, there's some funny things with the people really failing at being a farmer that I enjoyed as well. So. Right. Oh, that's so fun. So fun. Okay. So my last one is uh, Ocean's Eleven, uh, the 2001 movie with, Oh my gosh, this cast is like so stacked. So we got what? George Clooney, Matt Damon, Andy Garcia, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Bernie Mac, Carl Reiner. Like, so you got like some heavy hitters in this. And basically it's another con man uh, a story about, uh, so uh, George Clooney plays Danny Ocean and he uh, is coming out of jail because he got caught as a con man uh, and his life literally fell apart uh, after he got arrested. And his wife, who's played by Julia Roberts, uh, has moved on and he's trying to get his life back is pretty much what it is. So he assembles a, a, a group of people to come together uh, to rob um, 
a casino, the MGM casinos in Las Vegas. And this cast of characters, just in general, this is one of the movies that I like I'll just have in the background. Like I've seen all of the Oceans movies. There's four of them now technically. So there's Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans 13, and Oceans 8, which is a spinoff with uh, Sandra Bullock who plays uh, Danny Ocean's sister in uh, Oceans 8. Do you, so, want to, do you want to hear something funny? The only one I've actually seen is Oceans 8. So I probably need really? to go back and watch the others. Yeah, because I was attracted by the idea of the all-woman cast. Like that was like what got me. So yeah, if I had to... To pick like my favorite oceans movie it's definitely is oceans 11 oceans 13 and oceans 12 uh for me oceans 12 doesn't really like hit it as well as oceans 11 and oceans 13 um and oceans 13 has um um Al Pacino in it as oh. the bad guy. And he is so amazing. Like, again, this cast of characters uh, for the Oceans movies, just in general, is so fantastic. And this is always a movie franchise that I recently just did a rewash of all three of these movies. Like, my partner and I will sit down and, like, yearly watch these movies back to back to back because that's how enjoyable. And Steven Sodenberg, just in general, I'm a Sodenberg fan. Like, I love all of his movies. And nice. he was a really great great job of directing this movie so yeah oceans 11 is my final pick go out there and watch it if you have not seen it and the film trilogy is amazing and just in general the play between george clooney and brad pitt in this movie oh gold maybe i will finally check these out because sophia also recommended this movie on one of our early um we had these used to have this special shorter show which i might bring back at some point called now streaming and sophia recommended that on one of those episodes so yeah maybe i gotta check it out well i just want to thank you again so much jess for coming on to every rom-com today and i wanted to give you one more opportunity to just tell people where they can find um body literati or any other projects you might want to um tell about our listeners about really quick Yes. So Jen, thank you as always. I appreciate you reaching out. And if you would, if you're interested in hearing uh, two librarians talk about erotica and romance, check out Body Literati, uh, and that's B-A-W-D-Y Literati. Uh, we are on Instagram. Uh, currently, that's the only platform right now that we are uh, keeping up with. And then we also have an email address. It's bodyliteratipodcast at gmail.com. We just wrapped up our second season, our billionaire season, and then we will be coming back for season three uh, again sometime in the fall around spooky season October uh, with a new theme and uh, a potential recommendation from Jen earlier <laughs> on about uh, ways that we can engage but yes and then just in general you know support your libraries support librarians support just kind of like this understanding that you know information and book bans and like you know showing up and being represented in the information that you uh, uh, put out into the world is important especially for non-white people. So, uh, you know, get out there, support uh, your library, support your librarians and support uh, books that uh, have a multicultural and intersectional lens. Yeah, get out there and support your libraries and librarians. Yeah, totally. Like, I'm glad that we got to talk about like libraries on this show specifically too. And yeah, it's, it's definitely get involved in your community. Make sure that your community is supporting your local library and funding your local library, because like that's where a lot of these attacks are coming right now, trying to actually defund the library. So, yeah, I agree with that. And as to um, every rom-com, our next episode will be on Xanadu, the 1980 musical with Olivia Newton-John, Michael Beck and Gene Kelly. And after that, we will be doing a few more musicals, after which we will head into our high school rom-com series, which I'm 
super jazzed about, to be honest. <laughs> okay, so stay tuned for that. And if you have any feedback, please email us at feedback at everyromcom.com. And thanks everyone for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.